Okay, obviously, guys, given the episode we're uh, going to be talking about, any guesses as to the song we're going to be opening with? Oh. Um, you, um, Rolling Stones. Okay, you've got the Rolling Stones. <laughs> which, uh, which one? Which one I was going to say. Oh, thought, um, <laughs> Monkey Man. Okay, you're, Steve, you're thinking that you're thinking Gimme Shelter, Leighton? What, yeah. what are you going to pick? <laughs> I could go for the totally obvious uh, opening credits. Oh, but I, I'll go for Sid Vicious in my way. Oh, you're going to go for my way. Kyle, what are you going to go for? Uh, Layla. Okay. Oh, well, yes. interestingly, none of you are going to know until you hear the episode. <laughs> as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. I know I'd go from rags to return. It may be empty I'd be a millionaire My clothes may still be torn and tattered To me so welcome back to the film 89 podcast this is episode 60 i'm sky from film89.co.uk and tonight my fellow film 89 alumni mr steve amos is joining me sadly not in person but via the medium of skype steve how are you doing my friend oh very good very good it's good to be back yeah you've uh, you've had a bit of a rough time lately haven't you well, me and COVID have had a bit of a you know relationship for a while. Yes, you've had you've had a bit of a run in, haven't you? <laughs> we did, yeah. A bit, a bit of a disagreement. Yeah. Yes, but uh, I managed to kick him out of the door, and uh, you did. I, he, he's not coming back. And you're fighting fit. <laughs> I'm fighting fit. Fantastic. And there's another film eighty nine contributor making his debut on the podcast tonight, as well as having written countless pieces for the site. He's a frequent co-host on the Undead Wookie podcast, and he may well be the most Welsh-sounding person we've had on the podcast so far. It's yeah. Mr. Leighton Winston. Leighton, welcome to Film 89. Thank you very much. I'm hoping to live up to that bill. All I'll say then is shamai, everybody. Shumai. Shumai. <laughs> and that's not all. We have another guest host making their Film 89 debut, and he's certainly not Welsh. Hailing all the way from the good old US of A, we're very glad to finally be joined by a longtime friend of Film 89, filmmaker and hardcore cinephile, Mr. Kyle Reardon. Kyle, welcome also to Film 89. It's uh, long overdue. I'm, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me, guys. Hey, no problem. And now tonight, Kyle, we're going to be discussing not one, but two of the all-time great crime dramas, Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas and its kind of pseudo-spiritual sequel, Casino. Now, you're in the kind of final editing stages of your own feature debut, Nowhere to Run. So if you could, Kyle, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and about your upcoming film. Yeah, I'm a 23-year-old filmmaker from a small town in New Hampshire called Nashua, and uh I've, ever since I was five, I just I fell in love with film. Uh, first time I ever saw Jaws. Uh, it was the movie that moved me and made me interested in telling stories and invoking emotion. And uh, the scene specifically was uh, Ben Gardner when his head pops out. I, I, I wasn't watching the film at the moment. I was looking at my dad's face and he jumped out of his skin. And I don't know why, but I, I remember that and it replayed in my head over and over again. And I just, I knew somewhere deep down that I need to learn how to do that. And I was in college for a little bit uh, for filmmaking, but I dropped out to make a feature film. 
uh, nowhere to run, as you said. And that has been aided by wrong reelers and uh, film Twitter alike with sending donations and uh, supporting. And you guys wrote an article on us, and that was amazing. And uh, been working in the industry for about five years now. And uh, when I'm not directing, I do grip and electric work. Uh, just, yeah, I'm in love with film. It's my life, and it's everything I, I want to do with my life. Cool, cool. And and the two films we're going to be talking about tonight, Kyle, how have they been an influence on you? Uh, Goodfellas is, you know, in the top five. I, I don't like making lists, really. But, like, if I had to pick five movies, Goodfellas is in there. Uh, I saw it at a young age, and... It's my family's favorite movie, and we just we've watched it over and over again. And I quote all the lines in like daily vernacular of like just walking around. Like it's a movie that's impacted me in such a way, uh, just as a culture thing and as a filmmaker. You know, when I got older and started really getting into film, Scorsese, particularly these two films, were just huge influences on me. And Casino was something I found in high school that just blew me away uh, when I saw it for the first time. I've had waning opinions on Casino when I uh, in recent watching, uh, recent viewings, but overall, I'm a I'm still a huge fan of both films. Okay, now Steve, obviously, you and I have discussed Scorsese several times in the past. You know, both on the podcast and, and well, you know, I think it was episode fifty. Uh, we discussed Goodfellas, and then obviously, yourself and Tony Sower did an episode on The Irishman, and I think it's safe to say that he is he's certainly one of our favorite directors, and these two films are obviously two of our favorites. Is that right? It is, and uh, Goodfellas were marked. The beginning of, uh, I suppose, the relationship with myself and Martin Scorsese. I saw it in the cinema when it first came out, and I've managed to watch every single film that he's released since then in the cinema. You know, he is my favourite director, you know, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. There's very few filmmakers or um, directors or even stars or anything like that that I will run out to see because, you know, cinema is is quite a long way from my house and uh, and all that that goes with it and everything time and everything but Martin Scorsese I will go out of my way just to to watch and uh, what we went through to the with the Irishman of trying to find where it was going to be playing and um, how we were going to get there and everything myself and Tony it was like a military operation Goodfellas is the very first film of the sequence that I've seen and I've managed to watch every single one of them now since then yes yeah I saw it in, um, in the Castle Cinema in Merthyr when, when I was there <laughs> and I'll, te- I'll, I'll, I'll tell you something now, right, because um, obviously, you know, you know my sister and uh, I, I was watching it and I was, I think I was 19 at the time and I'm about mm-hmm. six or seven years older than my sister. And at the at the end of the film, we were all standing out, I was, you know, friends, we were all, you know, gushing how good it was. And I turned around and she was there, she was only about 12 and she was watching it in the back. <laughs> no way. Now see, the, the first... Obviously, for you, Kyle, this would have been an R-rated film. Um, over in the UK, it would have been rated 18. Now, mm-hmm. summer of 1990, I think I must have been 13, and I don't think I saw my first 18-rated film in the cinema until the following year, which was Tony Scott's The Last Boy Scout. So, unfortunately, I didn't see Goodfellas in the cinema. I saw it probably on VHS maybe the following year, but it completely got its hooks into me from early on. It was probably one of the first crime drama gangster films that really had an impact on me. And every couple of years, I would have to watch that film. And then as I kind of hit my early 20s, and I kind of really, in a big way, got into Scorsese, Goodfellas was one of those films. One of probably about five Martin Scorsese films, which I would watch pretty much every week on repeat. And included in that list of films would be Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, Mean Street and Casino. These are two films which I absolutely adore. 
I think genuinely hands down both films are two of the greatest films ever made. Bringing us on to Leighton, in your appearance on the Undead Bucky podcast, I think about was it about April 2018, late when you did Goodfellas? April or Some, May? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, you made it quite clear on that episode. The Goodfellas is hands down your favourite film of all time. Go on, take us through your own personal relationship with the film. Me and you, we're a similar age, so I wasn't old enough to get into the cinema to see it when it came out in 1990. I think it was um, the first thing I ever heard about it was um, unbelievably. Do you remember Teddy Christian? Yes. The TV presenter? On the Word. Yeah, they pre- on the Word on a Friday night. Yeah. And I remember reading an interview in a magazine, and um, it was one of those back of the magazine 20 questions. And somebody said, What's the last film you saw? And he said, Goodfellas. And he said, It was really, really good. Picked my interest a little bit and didn't didn't think anything of it until like two weeks later I was in school. Guy comes up to me in school, both hit the films, and he says, "Have you seen this film called Goodfellas? Here's a copy of it." <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. So went home, watched it, watched it the day after, watched it the day after that, watched it the day after that. Two weeks later, the guy's going, "Can I my, can I have my tape back, please?" And I'm like, "What tape?" And he's like, uh, "Goodfellas. I lent it to you a fortnight ago." Yeah, so that moment was, I had to give it back. And it's like, right, Christmas list. This was August, September. Christmas list, top of the list, Goodfellas on VHS. And it just stemmed from there. And much like Steve, this was probably my proper first Martin Scorsese film. Tenter hooks in, and that was it. Back catalogue had to be investigated. Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, Mean Streets. You know, and round about that time when it came out on video, I think Cape Fear was coming out on video uh, the year after, and that sort of piqued me just a little bit further. And it's never gone away. Never, ever has it gone away. In that episode with Hugh, I think I waxed lyrical for the best part of hour and a half about every, well, as much as I could talk about it then. I watched it again last night because I thought, right, I'm going to be speaking to other people now who, I know yourself, uh, Sky, me and Steve have spoken on Twitter every now and again. Uh, Kyle, I don't know. But can I just say, uh, in the Welsh, die down to your family, Kyle, for making Goodfellas your favourite family film. Uh, I'd love to be there uh, on a Sunday dinner talking about Goodfellas, I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah, it's 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 been there. It's always been there. It's one of those films, as a, as a, as a child of the VHS generation, I've had VHS, uh, DVD, Blu-ray, probably going to have to have it in 4K at some point very soon. Mm. Uh, I'll probably get the 8, 8K version. I never had a laser disc, so I never had a laser disc copy. <laughs> It's always been there. And I think with a director like Scorsese, once you start looking into the back catalogue, you read in the, the books, you start spreading your um, your branches a little bit and you're looking into his influences and then the films of De Niro, the films of Joe Pesci, Ray Liotta. And then you look into the bigger picture again as a result. I'm not going to lie, it still is my favourite film of all time. It will be probably for a very long time. It's it's just a truly, truly staggering, staggering film. Can I ask you, Leighton, did you have the old um, DVD version where you had to turn it over at halftime? And it was an no. A, B? No, that's what I had. I no, had no, 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 I, I resisted be, simply because when those first DVDs came out with the flip... Oh, they, they were the dreaded uh, Warner Brothers uh, yes. flipper discs. Oh, yeah. Oh, and, A-side and B-side. Uh, uh, yeah, and Miramax, and Miramax were guilty of it yeah. as well. No, I didn't because my cousin, my cousin actually bought it, and I said, I don't want to be doing that. I just want to watch it start to finish. I don't want to mm-hmm. have an intermission. For, for, as, as much as we may lament an intermission not being in the films these days, <laughs> um, I didn't want it in a DVD at home. So I waited. I think it was the twentieth anniversary edition, and I had a Region One, uh, a two disc version, which I still have. 
and it's the the, the packages of his sumptuous. There's a there's a documentary. It's only about 30, 40 minutes, but it has a lot of filmmakers I actually mentioned in the Undead Wookie podcast. But to hear those filmmakers talk and give the reverence to Goodfellas, and we're talking about John Favreau, Frank Darabont, the Hughes brothers, Richard Linklater. They're the four that I, that I remember clearly talking about it and the reverence to which they quite rightly give it. I, I, I haven't seen it on re-releases in the cinema. And it's, it's, it's one of the films that I do regret not having seen on the big screen. Leighton, obviously for any of our listeners who might not be, God forbid, might not be familiar with Goodfellas or maybe haven't seen it for a long time, kind of give us just a, a sort of brief sort of rundown or synopsis of the film. Thank you for asking. Goodfellas is Martin Scorsese's 1990 adaption of the book Wise Guy by Nicholas Pileggi, both of whom would write this game. Leighton, this almost, almost sounds pre-prepared or scripted. <laughs> Does it really? Well, I, mean, I was just going off the top of my head, honestly, but... Um... <laughs> I, I digress. I digress. Uh, uh, both of whom would write the screenplay. It tells the true story of Henry Hill joining and becoming part of an organised crime family and spooling over decades, revealing the relationships with his fellow hoods, including thief Jimmy Conway, played by Robert De Niro, the psychotic Tommy DeVito, played by Joe Pesci, mob boss Paul Cicero, by Paul Savino, his long-suffering wife Karen, played by Lorraine Bracco, and the ties and the ultimate betrayals that can happen when living a gangster lifestyle. I must also refer back to Henry Hill, played by, quite brilliantly, Ray Liotta. Does that cover it? That's good enough. That's definitely good enough. Yeah, I don't think you've missed out anything there. It's, yeah. Guys, it, you know, we could go scene by scene through this film uh, and just analyse it. Bearing in mind that we've also got to talk about another one of Scorsese's films, and we don't want to be here all night. But how could you not start with that film's opening? Can I can I just ask one thing? Has has everybody read Wise Guy? No, I haven't. No. Yes, I have. Yes, I a couple actually years ago. I've well, I've only recently read it completely, rather embarrassingly. The book to screenplay adaptation. It's like most books. There's large parts left out, and purely for cinematic reasons. But the the, the adaptation itself is hugely faithful. Uh, the opening sequence being the prime example of that. Slight things are tweaked, but the opening just sets up everything that happens thereafter, doesn't it? And yeah, it's, it does. It's going to show you, right, this is what you're going to have for the next two and a half hours. As, as an adaption, it's it, it's terrific. It's truly terrific. And there are slight nods, much like Scorsese did in The Irishman, nods back to the book that are going to be never featured in the film, yeah. simply because it'd be too ridiculous in certain parts. The opening of the film is, is excellent, but the, the originally it was going to be starting with the murder of Billy Bats and then to you know and then you know carry on as as it does but i think that by just having them in the car at the beginning you know you don't know why they're there you don't know who they are yet you don't know who the man in the trunk is i think that sets us up you know perfectly yeah it's, it's a perfect opening you, you could have started that film in a sort of linear fashion you could have started it with young henry hill and and charted his story that way and the film probably would have worked you know it, it, it would have still been a, an amazing film but starting it with that kind of halfway point and, and, you know, obviously the murder of Billy Bats is a tipping point in the film. It's where those guys, they, they cross over a line, don't they? You know, they, yeah. they, they, they kill a made man. You know, it shows that Tommy DeVito is just a complete, unhinged, uncontrolled psychopath. The fact that Jimmy Conway is more than happy to go along with him. And it's, it's that one incident that is the sort of turning point in the entire film. And then to go back then to the beginning, then tell the story, it sort of puts a greater deal of importance on that moment. 
and it's also just you know as far as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. You know that, and and the you know the, the slamming of the boot, and then it's it's just absolutely incredible opening. Well, it asks it's, the question, doesn't it? Um, uh, you know, as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Did he actually sign up for that? Did he know what it was? Did he know everything that was involved? I think he did. Did, did he know that one day he would be lifting up, you know, the the boot of a car and you know shooting somebody and stabbing somebody, you know, that was already half dead? Well, yeah. I was gonna, I was gonna say, you kind of hit on a point. I was thinking, like, it, it's a perfect intro for the audience because Henry is the audience in the entry point for the world and having um having that scene be so jarring at the beginning and not knowing what's going on and then have this excessive violent display happen it really punches you in the mouth and gets you ready for the next two and a half hours it's like there is no limit to what these guys can do and there is no limit to the danger that henry and you will be in and it's it's just a perfect intro for that i i've always personally thought that the the decision to have Joe Pesci stab him repeatedly was probably deliberate because it's quite easy to just to have a character shoot another character. But when you've got to have that that genuine physical in the in, rather than a, a projectile killing then for want of a better word, but have that physical act and then the shoot, that really does set the tone for the violence for the rest of the film. It's more personal as well. I mean, yes, absolutely. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Yep. Yes. You know, you could shoot somebody from a distance, but to get up and personal is more visceral. And it's more intense. And I think, you know, once you realize, oh, this is what's going to be for the next however long, I think it's the perfect starting point. And I am going to agree with you that it's a perfect opening. And call me me an original, but... (laughs) It sets up the characters as well, though, because um, Henry Hill looks on. He doesn't, you know, he's not involved in the killing there. He looks on and he's does what he's told. Jimmy looks, you know, he's the one who, Robert De Niro, he's the one who says, you know, who shoots from a distance. Whereas Tommy is the one who does all the stabbing yes. and gets up and does the dirty work and the, he, he doesn't, he's not afraid of getting his hands very yeah. bloody. Yeah. I think, yeah. And I think also, guys, that I think Scorsese was making a statement early on. Now, if it, let's look at, at, prior to 1990, let's look at Scorsese's back catalogue of films. Has there been anything as violent as that, aside from the final bloodbath in Taxi Driver? Had Scorsese portrayed violence in that way in any of his previous films leading up to Goodfellas in 1990? Stylized, um, I would say, uh, Raging Bull, but not in terms of the actual, you know. It's not visceral, though. It's not visceral. Yeah, no, yeah. Raging, Raging Bull is balletic, isn't it? It's not, the, and I think because it's in black, if he was in colour, then you'd be going, perhaps it would be classed as more yeah. violent, even though it's a sport and in sport you expect to see it, it's certainly in boxing yeah, isn't it? and in a way I think the violence in Raging Bull is more like sort of punishment that gets laid on Jake LaMotta yeah you know much like yeah. in Last Tempt- Temptation of Christ that's biblical violence that's crucifixion that, that's stuff that yeah. we've seen or heard before you know that, that final bloodbath in Taxi Driver is just absolutely insane but Taxi Driver is a slow burn build up it's a it's a character study of Travis Bickle a man who is kind of on the edge and get and kind of tips over into an abyss of, of violence and bloodshed and the film builds up to that it kind of earns that whereas Goodfellas straight out of the gate is like boom this is what you're going to be seeing this is the opening salvo and then from then on it kind of takes us on this trip and you know these guys that we've seen committing these heinous crimes we are now going to be endeared towards them we are going to end up in some ways in many ways rooting for 
some of these characters, certainly. Yeah. And I think from that yeah. point of view, you know, there's, there's no doubt. Steve, you know, obviously you and I and the rest of the Film 89 crew in our private conversations about film have, have discussed what is a perfect film. And I know The Goodfellas is one of the ones that came up several times in that conversation. Obviously, Leighton, you've made it quite clear you think it's a perfect film. And, and I fully agree. This film, from start to finish, is one of those films, like Jaws, like, you know, a, a lot of other films that we've discussed, that is one of those sort of holy grail perfect films. And that opening is just, it's just perfect. And then it leads into, Leighton, I'll let you talk about the casting of a young Henry Hill and how well that was handled in this opening sort of act of the film. I might be preaching the video, but every time I've seen Goodfellas, I cannot believe they found an actor whose resemblance so closely resembled Ray Liotta hmm. intimate that the piercing eyes even match the facial, a te- a, that teenage chubbiness even <laughs> matches to what would become, you know, the adult at the end of the day. It's it's frightening almost to see. I, I know you can you can say, well, you know, oh, we've got this kid that kind of looks like a young uh, Ray Liotta. We've got this kid that looks like a young Joe Pesci. You'll have to excuse me because I can't think of the guy's name unless you've got this guy because I haven't. Signed. Who's that? But um, the, the young the young man who plays the young um, oh uh, Christopher Sarone. Sorry, Christopher Sarone. His his look to what would become really after is staggering, but the transition from 1955 to 1963 is so deftly handled between um, the Denis, um, Jimmy Conway age in that little bit, and obviously young Tommy ages. 20 years compared to <laughs> really after eight years. But we'll forgive, we'll forgive that because, you know... Right, Leighton, it, sorry, can I just stop you there? Right? One of the things yeah. you mentioned in the episode for the Undead Walker you did on Goodfellas, you mentioned, uh, I think is it Joseph D'Onofrio plays young Tommy? Yeah, no, you you picked you picked up on a on a little kind of quirk that oh, he had yes, yes. when, yeah, when yes. he refers to Henry as Henry. Yes, now, now you kind of picked yeah. that up as, yeah, but that's not right. Now, for me, that's always sat right as a young Tommy DeVito would have called him Henry. And then as he grew up and sort of got older, it was like one of those little things, those little quirks, character quirks that he let go of and he would refer to him as Henry. But it always sat right with me and I always liked it. It was just one of those things where it made me think that that actor had had said, no, 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 I'm going to call him Henry. Like as if Henry is not, like it's not Paulie or Tommy or or Michael, one of the traditional Italian names I've grown up with. This guy, he's not, you know, he's not a thoroughbred Italian. He's Italian Irish, so I'm going to call him Henry. I just always liked it. I always thought it was a cool little touch. Yeah, it's a nickname, isn't it? Yeah. Rather than, I'm not going to go into some of the nicknames that some of the kids were called when I was growing up because. (laughs) Oh God. Well, we we just get cancelled right now, but. Different times. No, you, you, I think you're quite right there, uh, Sky. To be honest with you, um, it was one of those things that I, I, it, it stands out, and it does because it's the it's the New York accent lending itself to the Hendry, Hendry, yeah. is, and uh, you know, giving that that further authenticity. Then, for for you know, one of a better sentence, yeah. it is quite remarkable the casting of those mm-hmm. young actors, and even even young Tommy does look like a young. T- he does. Yeah, he does. De Niro looks. 45, whatever he was. Yeah. But again, you know, we could start talking about the Irishman and, you know, the agent. But we're not going to go into that. We're not going to mention that at this moment in time. Yeah. So, Kyle, you, you've written a script. You've translated that script to screen. How well does Scorsese handle that first act of the film? The act of the film that gets his hooks into the viewer, that takes us along on this ride, endears us to these characters, and, and whatever that factor is, that, that, that sort of just mesmerises you. 
because Goodfellas does that better than or as good as any other film I've seen. It just takes you on this ride and, and, and shows you all of these things. And that you is it exposition? I don't I don't know what it is because I'll probably I'll say oh well, I know I will I'll definitely say the same about Casino later on where the first thirty minutes of that film is just introducing you to characters, introducing you to their lifestyle, introducing you to the system that they're a part of, which is obviously in in the case of Casino is criminality and the whole system of Las Vegas and how that works. But Scorsese does exactly the same thing with Goodfellas. He takes you into this life of of a gangster, of a wise guy. You know, they never say mafia. They never say mafia or mafioso in the film. But Kyle, what have you got to say about the first act of the film and, and Scorsese's just absolute mastery of storytelling? Well, I, I think there's a few factors. And I think one of the big ones for me is his level of detail is incredible. And his level of detail in his adaptations as well is incredible with any script he does. Because you can read parts of Wise Guys and it's exactly what shows up on the screen. Like even from like the way people are going to be blocked and the way, you know, you can see it in the book when you're reading it, like Henry talking about like, you know, these guys are at the bar, you know, like, you know, I'm going to get the papers, get the papers. And like you, you see those guys. Jimmy two like, times. Yeah, Jimmy two times. <laughs> and you see those guys specifically in the book and you're like, oh, I know who that guy is. I would, you know, see that. And then visually, Martin really can pull like you were talking about the quirk, like the Henry thing. Each character in this film has like a quirk, has something that's memorable. You know, Jimmy two times is in the movie for five seconds, yeah. but everyone remembers him. Everyone quotes him. And that, that's the case with a bunch of characters throughout this film. It was Anthony Stabile, Frankie Carbone, and then there was Mo Black's brother, Fat Andy, and his guys, Frankie the Wop. Freddie No Nose. And then there was Pete the Killer, who was Sally Balls' brother. And you had Nicky Eyes. And Mikey Franchese. And Jimmy Two Times, who got that nickname because he said everything twice, like. I'm gonna go get the papers, get the papers. And I also think another thing is so he has that level of detail where it. You know, as cliche as it is to say, it feels like a living world and it feels like there's so much going on. And each scene is like almost its own short film with three acts. And with the way he edits the music, it's such a kinetic energy that moves you through. So it's almost like you're flowing through the movie instead of just being like, all right, this is the new scene. This is the new scene. It all feels like one piece and it keeps your attention because it doesn't feel like you're, you know, jumping around everywhere, even though you are, you're, you're getting so much information at once. It's just perfectly laid out in the way of, you know, we're going to set it up to this music, uh, which I, on the rewatch, just focusing on the music, I was really into that. And the amount of different pieces in that first like 30 minutes of like different songs and it's not even like a full song it'll be like a, a chorus of this song and then we'll take the bridge of the beginning of this song and he's kind of like Frankenstein a whole bunch of music together to really score his film it just makes the energy feel so alive and it makes you really excited you know when his father comes in and starts beating the crap out of him all the music goes away because this is a real moment. This is yeah. real violence. And the, and it shows the gravity of, oh, this is, a, you know, can be a luxurious life. And then there's also the reality of what life is. You know, I'm getting beat by my dad. There's violence all around me in this town. 
And it really sets up that world perfectly. So when we get into the later acts, you don't need any more information. It's just you're in it now. You're in it with them. And that's why it gets faster and faster and faster as you get on into the film. And, and that's that's the reason, Carl, I asked you that question. Because I knew you, obviously as a filmmaker, as someone who spent months editing a film. To me, the thing that grabs you as a viewer and takes you along that ride and gets his hooks into you is the editing. And, and Thelma Schoonmaker, who's worked with Scorsese since the early days and, you know, has, has edited many of his best films, she is the, 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 the true, I think, guiding hand behind Scorsese's work that, God forbid, when he's, he's making a film without her, it, I just don't see how it's going to have that same energy. And, and Goodfellas is, as well as being a perfect film, it's a perfectly edited film. Yep. It, it's every freeze frame. You know, yeah. it's also it also comes down. It's a combination of everything. It's the cinematography, but you know, the editing is taking all of that footage and putting it together in such a way. Thelma Schumacher is is hands down, I think, one of the the, the best editors in in the history of film, and and the editing of Goodfellas just takes my breath away. It, it is absolutely just staggering. You just think. You know, it's the overlapping of, of sound effects. It's the as the, as we go into that cocaine field last act. It, it's the screeching of tires. It, it, it's the way the music comes in at certain points. It's the sound effect. Everything is brought together perfectly by her. And it wasn't until tonight that I realised that there was a co-editor who was uncredited, James Key. James Key, though, yeah. And you know we're going to talk as this podcast goes along, and we and we go into the back catalogue of Scorsese films. We're going to talk about as much as of, of his filmography as we can. But you you find me a better edited film than Goodfellas because personally, I, I think it's it is just the absolute epitome of a perfectly edited film. It's like the um, shower scene in. Uh... Uh, cycle but repeated time and time and time again throughout. it's a full movie of that that's yeah. exactly yeah. correct yes. yeah, it's a yeah. full movie yeah, totally. of that totally. yes yeah. yes totally. that's a thousand percent yes but uh, going back to what you said about the um voiceover though because he seemed he did that and then he did the age of innocence and then he did casino all within five years and i know the age of innocence is a very different film from these but the technique he uses is almost identical it's the voiceover. It's the camera. It's the uh, the effects of uh, of editing, and it's it, it, and, and almost the story. The, I mean, it's, it's emotional violence in uh, Age of Innocence, but you know, he, he seems to be developing that as he went along. He was inventing it and in, um, developing it as you know within five short years. Yeah, and well, Steve, you mentioned voiceover. It, it's been said that a voiceover can be a sort of crutch for a poor script. I don't agree with that. And I think it was myself and Neil and Jacob Rivera who mentioned it on our Fight Club episode, the fact that a film like Fight Club employs voiceovers extensively as it does, and to great success, it isn't any less of a film. It, it isn't, and especially a film like Fight Club, where a lot of what you're being told is the sort of thought process of this fractured mind. I think some people do use voiceover as an easy way out. You know, when take Blade Runner for example, I, I prefer it without the vo- voiceover. I agree. I agree. Uh, you know, and um, I, you know, the fact he was only put in on the last second because they thought they needed to explain things to an audience. Yeah, I think that's lazy. But yeah, no, it can be a band aid, but it's yeah. not. I don't think it's a crutch though. I think it's something when it's well done, it gives you insight to a character that you had. You couldn't achieve any other way. Yeah, and one, one of the things you mentioned late in the Undead Walkie episode you did on Goodfellas is the fact that Frank Darabont, the director of the Shawshank Redemption, during the filming of Shawshank, he would watch Goodfellas every Sunday. Now, you've got to think then, what's the link between Goodfellas and Shawshank? But one of the things that it shares is a voiceover throughout the film. Yeah, absolutely. Going from Goodfellas has two prominent voiceovers. Mm-hmm. 
and then Casino has four. Yes. If I'm rem- rem- remembering correct, because Frank uh, Vincent comes yeah, in. Frank Vincent comes in just for that one little bit where he, and again, we're jumping yes. ahead, yeah. but yeah, it, it, it's relevant because obviously when he goes and speaks to Remo, and Remo asks him, he says, yeah. you know, the little guy wouldn't happen to be banging the Jew's wife, would he? And, he, and it, it pauses, it goes to a freeze frame, and he <laughs> yeah. said, you know, yeah. I had to tell him no. I had to lie because Ginger and and and, and Nikki and Sam would all be killed, and but then I could end up getting whacked yeah. myself. Yeah, and it's that little bit. Yeah. where Frank Vincent has been in many ways a sort of not a bit player, but he's been a secondary character throughout that story. But then all of a sudden, when it becomes relevant, Scorsese gives him a bit of of narration. So yeah, how many players give narration in Goodfellas? It's just Henry and Karen, isn't it? Correct. Yeah, it's purely from their from their perspective, isn't it? There's nobody else. Um, one thing I was gonna sort of hark back to, do you know you were talking about soundtrack and cinematography and all the rest? Yeah. Uh, I don't know whether you're aware of this, but um, uh, Michael Balhouse shot the film. Yeah, Michael Balhouse, yeah, he's obviously a long-time yeah. collaborator with Scorsese. I believe in the last two weeks, a week of filming, because he was contracting a blind to go and make another film. All right. Do, do you know who took over as, um, do you know who took over as DOP? Uh, I do, and I can't remember because it's bloody hell. Steve, do you know? Uh, I, yes, I've read this many times. And do you think I can think of it now? <laughs> Kyle? No, I, I don't know this. Um, right, is it, right, Leighton, is it someone else that's collaborated with, with him before? No, not as far as I'm aware. But he, he is a renowned director in his own right. You're going to say it and we're going to kick ourselves. Barry Sonnenfeld. Yes, yes. he did, wow. because Barry Sonnenfeld... Yes, wow. and before that, he was a cinematographer who, quite famously... He started out on um, on porn films, didn't he? And he yeah. went. Wow. Yeah, Michael Balhouse was had to had to go uh, because he was committed with it starting another film. But uh, Goodfellas overran slightly. I think it was either a week or ten days or two weeks. And um, Barry Sonnenfeld sort of knew Martin Scorsese, and he called him in to film. And I think it was the the last. I, I, I can't think what sequence it is, but. He came in to film the last day, and I I only heard it on another podcast quite recently, yeah. the Mark uh, Mark Maron po- uh, podcast, is it? And yeah. um, he had an interview with him because Barry Sonnenfeld had a book out and whatnot, and he and he brought it up, and he said, "Oh, you you shot Goodfellas," and I was like, "Pardon? <laughs> what do you mean he shot Goodfellas? We didn't shoot Goodfellas. You're the guy who made the Adams Family and Men in Black. He didn't shoot Goodfellas at all." And he was explaining, but he was saying for that one week. De Niro and Martin Scorsese just took the piss out of him for the entire week he was shooting <laughs> constantly. He's like, who the, who the fuck is this guy? Like, you know, because they're so used to working with this one guy for the duration. And then this guy comes from the last one tenth of the film. And it was like, who the fuck is this guy? But uh, he said it was it was it was good fun. He said it was good fun. It was good fun. But yeah, I was I was flabbergasted because little stories like this, they're not always when you look on, say, I don't know, Wikipedia or IMDb, they did they, they sort of get lost in the mix a little yeah. bit but um no it was barry sonnenfeld there you are there's a there's a pub quiz question for you so two things i want to bring up in relation to goodfellas which are going to be through lines to our conversation the first one is authenticity now uh, obviously before we had this discussion guys um i, I sent you a, a message on whatsapp uh, and it was in relation to um michael francesi yeah now he yep. was a former member of the lucchese crime family uh, he was a real-life friend of Henry Hill, and in one of his many videos, which you can find on YouTube, he shed some light on the truth about Henry Hill and many of the characters portrayed in the film. Now, he describes Goodfellas, and again, this goes back to 
the, the, the theme of authenticity as being one of the three most authentic representations of mob life that he's ever seen alongside Donnie Brasco. I know that's a film that you and me have discussed recently, Leighton, because we've, we've rewatched it. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. And the other one was the HBO film Gotti starring Amanda Sante. But going back to Goodfellas, yeah, he says that the authenticity was there even though he knows Henry Hill and he knows a lot of the other real-life characters portrayed in the film. So he says it's authentic in his portrayal of mob life. Now, this is one of the things about Goodfellas I only kind of became aware of upon a, the, the DVD release back in the early 2000s when you had all of the supplementary material. I actually paid attention to the fact that this was the retelling of, in inverted commas, true events from the point of view of one person, Henry Hill. And the thing that's always bothered me since about Goodfellas, not to the point that it affects my enjoyment of the film, but the fact is that, and again, Steve, obviously you're a big Akira Kurosawa fan. This is the Rashomon effect. This is the interpretation of truth from the point of view of one person. I've always questioned how true the events in Goodfellas are. Because the one issue I've had is we see all of these other characters, Tommy DeVito, Paulie Cicero, Jimmy Conway, all committing these heinous acts of violence. And the only real act of violence we see Henry Hill commit is against the guy who sexually assaulted his girlfriend at the time when he, he pistol whips him on the driveway. Obviously, he had a part to play in the, in the Billy Bats affair. Uh, with the fact that you know he got rid of the body, but in the actual killing of him, Henry Hill wasn't directly involved. And the thing that I've always questioned is, really, Henry? <laughs> Even Michael Francesi says that Henry Hill wasn't a bad guy. He wasn't the kind of smooth, good-looking, kind of almost ladies' man that he was portrayed as in, in the film. But I've always questioned the fact that, yeah, this is your version of the story. How much of this is true? How, If you're given a testimony against these other people, you know, further down the line, the things which have caused you to have to go into witness protection with your wife, of course you're not going to be admitting to committing murders and, and, and God knows what. And it's always something I've been conscious of, the fact that, yeah, yeah, this is your version of the truth. Yeah, I think it goes, if, you know, you've already mentioned Shawshank Redemption, you know, uh, how uh, Morgan Freeman is the only guilty man in Shawshank. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's that kind of thing. But have you heard the story that Michael Francesi tells about when he took his uh, soon-to-be wife to Goodfellas? Yes. Yeah, that's a great story. I think she was from the West Coast of America, and I don't think yes, she yes. was in any way familiar with a kind of uh, you know mob life. That, uh, she knew uh, that he was involved a little yeah. bit because he'd been to prison and everything. <laughs> but, but then um, they went to see it, and, um, and at the beginning of that scene, when um, you know you um, Jimmy two times and all the others and uh, Fat Tony and all those, and then one of the one of the characters there is called Michael Francis. Yeah, <laughs> and she stormed out. They had an argument in the lobby because you like you told me you weren't involved. <laughs> yeah, and she and says like, something like you know that was the kind of life you were involved in. That they were the kind of things you did. And he said, "Hey, yeah. come on, honey, it's just a movie." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he did talk to um, uh, Nick Pelleggi later and said, why did he put me in? I I knew these guys, but I didn't hang with them at all. Mm. And Nick Pelleggi said, well, you're a, you know, you're a well-known name. So we had to be, it was name recognition and that was it. Do you find that's quite funny, though? He put his name in, but a lot of the main protagonists' names all were changed. changed. It changed, yeah. <laughs> all changed, weren't they? But apart from Henry Hill. Yeah. Yeah, we started. It, it, it got me wondering a little bit. It was a case of, right, well, if you're going to say that he did this and he did that. Are you leaving yourself open? Despite the book having been released, but in the film version, they thought, right, we're going to save ourselves a little bit of beef here by changing. Well, it's obviously this person, but we're going to call them Jimmy Conway instead of Jimmy Burke, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Do you think they did that just to sort of save themselves a pretty penny? Possibly. Despite the book. Well, possibly. Yeah, it, 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 you know, so it could 
something to do with that as well, because they were still, uh, you know, waiting for parole and whatnot. So there might have been yes. a whole legality yeah. thing. Yeah. But some people thrive on that notoriety, though, don't they? Oh, yeah. Which is, you know, it's reputation and everything about that sort of lifestyle is reputation to a, to to an awful lot of them, especially the older generation, isn't it? So well, you know, if they if their names are up in lights, then you'd think they 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 they'd like the attention, whilst perhaps not wanting it at the same time to attract attention to themselves. Yeah, it's something that um, Frank Sheeran um, did when he you know with the Irishman, um, mm. it, when he was writing the book I Hear You Paint Houses. There's a couple of different editions of it, and he said that in later editions were because you know at the time of the first edition the people were still alive, so he wasn't going to mention those stories, mm. and he would only put them in after they had you know passed away. So they, I suppose there was no comeback to him. Yeah. yeah. So maybe yeah. it's something like that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Could it be? Obviously, you've you've all read Wise Guys, so you can comment on what a great adaptation of that book this is. We've talked about Michael Balhouse's cinematography, film filmmakers editing. Is there anything really that we need to say about Scorsese's direction, which we're not going to say about this film or the next one we're going to talk about, about what you guys, you know, when you when you talk, Steve, about The Irishman? It's not something that's up for debate. He is one of the all-time greatest directors. He's one of the greatest living directors. So I don't think there's anything that we can add about Scorsese, you know, as in his directorial style that hasn't been said countless times before. But what about the casting of the film, guys? Because, oh. obviously, Leighton, you mentioned on the episode you did with the Undead Wookiee, obviously De Niro uh, as Jimmy Conway. His, his collaborations with Scorsese have produced some of, personally for me, some of the greatest films ever made. Obviously, Joe Pesci, Tommy DeVito, was just absolutely remarkable. And he would kind of tap into that same energy then, five years later, in Casino. But let's talk about the uns- well, one of the two unsung heroes of Goodfellas, Ray Liotta. It's remarkable. You look at the calibre of this film. No disrespect to Reliota's career. And Sky, if you've listened to that podcast recently, you could probably comment it better what I said then to now. <laughs> but Reliota, he had a pretty good CV starting off. He was um, something wild with Jonathan Demme. Mm-hmm. I think was his catalyst, wasn't it? And, you know, he's made, he's made films... Yeah, and he's, he's made films consistently since, hasn't he, in fairness. But nothing has ever come as close to this. And I think if I'm if I'm remember correctly, I bring up about um award season. Really Otta didn't get nominated, but Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci consistently did. Yes. And and that's staggering because at the end of the day, Robert De Niro is the name above the post uh, above the uh, the film title. But really is the man who carries the film. He does, he does. And He's, he's, he's staggering, and yeah, when you read the book and when you read about Henry Hill, Henry Hill was a was a part of my French, a fucking arsehole of a man. <laughs> he was not the nice man, not at all. And and let's put it this way: really, Arthur is a, is a very handsome man. He's charismatic. Henry Hill was the fucking polar opposite of that man. Total polar opposite. You say that, right? Because when um, they met afterwards, Henry Hill thanked Ray Liotta for not making him look like an arsehole. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> yeah. And Leota said that at the time, he, the only thing he could think of was, we must have seen a different film. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, yeah, what, what, that's the power of, of the movies, then, isn't it? But, but really, really, Arthur is sensational. From that, that young man of, is it, when they do the time jump, he's 22, 23. Yeah. 
and he's he's stealing the tracks and what have you. And by the time you come round to that remarkable uh, May the eleventh, nineteen eighty sequence, the cocaine frenzy, the the as you said, the six, seven, eight songs all add into the tension of that twenty four hour, well, six in the morning to eleven in the evening, and everything in between. And really, Arthur's banged out, withdrawn, exhausted. Cocaine fueled, Valium fueled, almost had an accident, and he is sensational. And you're telling me that, yeah, Joe Pesci's amazing, fully deserved his awards and whatnot, but is Robert De Niro better than Ray Liotta? Honestly? I think it's a prestige thing, isn't it? The fact that by that point, Robert De Niro had, you know, he'd won an Oscar for The Godfather Part Two. Two. He'd won two Oscars. Yeah. Two, yeah. He'd, he'd put in countless phenomenal performances, going as far back as Mean Streets. Taxi Driver, absolutely. Uh, the, the Deer Hunter, uh, absolutely. King of Comedy, you know, Midnight even, Run, Midnight Run. Even the same year, nineteen ninety, Awakenings. He, you know, he put in another incredible performance that year. So you know he was a given. I think Joe Pesci was maybe the big surprise, as in like the fact that a little diminutive guy like that could play such a terrifying and and even. The guy that his character was actually based on in real life was six foot two and 220, 230 pounds. But we've got this diminutive little guy playing one of the most terrifying characters ever to grace the, the silver screen. Absolutely. Ray Liotta, and, and there's been a few times since I've seen him in films where I've, I've, I've seen that same sort of quality. Films like Joe Carnahan's Narc from 2002, oh. which I think is a hugely underrated film. Fabulous. The film. other one. Fabulous film. And this, this is a film that. Neil and I will at some point cover on the podcast because it's just for us. It's just a it's a masterpiece. It's a work of art. Is Copland, Joe Mangold's Copland, and fabulous film. I will always say fabulous. that Sylvester fabulous. Stallone's performance in that film is one of the all time great unsung performances. It was understated. It played against you know the, his action hero image from the eighties. But you also look at Ray Liotta in this in that film. Ray Liotta's magnificent. And personally, I think everyone is is pretty great in Copland, but Ray Liotta, he doesn't get the credit, and he, he should have got the credit for Goodfellas because he is he is as good as anyone else in that film. And I said two of the unsung heroes of Goodfellas. The other one is the other person that gives narration in the film, and that's Lorraine Bracco as Karen Hill. She's flawless. Tremendous. She's absolutely she, flawless. When you read the book and you see what she's done and the script, obviously she's gone with the script, but. Like I like I said earlier, there's so much taken from the book into the script. But when you when you compare the two, and what she does with those scenes, is utterly utterly remarkable. And again, she starts from twenty up to forties, uh, uh, mid mid late, mid thirties to late uh, to early forties, and she's remarkable. She's right. absolutely remarkable. She really yeah. is. Yes, she is the adoring mob wife, and she will take those steps to, you know, try and get her husband out of prison. Mm. But everything is etched on her face when you watch her. She's pissed off when she finds out about the girlfriend. She's accepting of the same facts, you know, within a voiceover in the same scene. But she's committed all the way through, and she gives up. And yes, she's got a family commitments outside of her own family, but. She's committed, and she's committed fully to it, and she is absolutely remarkable, as you say. And I think, Leighton, her performance is so good, and she endears us to her so well. I think that's the biggest part of why Raylio treads a fine line between being an endearing protagonist, if you want to call him that, and being a total arsehole, is because of the way 
he treats Karen. There's that element of truth that I think may well be being blurred. The fact that we don't see Henry Hill commit anything more than a serious GBH with, you know, by pistol whipping someone. You know, he, he's involved in, he, he's kind of, you know, aiding and abetting a murder. You know, he's, he's getting rid of a body. You know, he is yeah. directly involved. But then, you know, given the lifestyle he's in, that's kind of par for the course. I think the reason that we end up not liking him is because of the way he treats Karen. Yeah, but ultimately, it's him. It's it's he's self he's selfish. It's all about him, isn't yeah. it? So he's it's going to make him sound that much better. He's going to make himself sound well. Yeah, you know, I did this for my wife. I did this for my kids. But I had to have a girlfriend at the same time because you know I'm I'm a, I'm almost a wise guy, mm-hmm. and and I've got I've got I've got to maintain some sort of standard, even though I'm never going to be part of that standard yeah. because of my heritage. And so that lends perfectly into what you're saying. Totally, perfectly yeah. into what everybody is saying. But in the book, you know, when he when he's giving evidence in court, he says, "Yeah, I, I I gave," and I said, "Yeah, they did it, they did it, they did it," and I didn't think anything for them, despite me, you know, living and breathing the same air as them for the last forty years, <laughs> because it's all about self preservation. And if that doesn't tell you everything about Henry Hill, then you know, you what you read and watch the wrong film because. That's what he, he's all about, self-preservation. Kyle, as, as someone who's, ca- who's cast their own film and has had to pick people to play parts which you've kind of conjured up in your mind in, in the scripting process, what are the standout performances for you in Goodfellas? See, that one, I, I, I love the side characters. I really love the choices of, like, Mike Starr as Frenchie, like uh, Frank Vincent as Billy Bats. I like those kind of actors. And... Um, and specifically because they just they feel so genuine to who that person would be. It, it seems like you couldn't have picked better actors for any of these. Like you know, Maury, uh, I believe the actor's Chuck Lowe. <laughs> yeah, Chuck Lowe is yeah. Uh, yeah. Maury, yeah Morris Lowe, Kessler. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think it's brilliant casting, and I think he commits to it so much where it's like. He is just this, like, you know, he's a scroungy guy. He's just, he just wants his money. He just wants all this. And he's going to annoy the, the shit out of you until he gets it. And I love, even like in his intro scene, uh, you see him jumping in the pool in that commercial. If you watch closely, you can see his wig, like, fly off underwater. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I, just, I love, like, there's just little, each, like, moment has just, like, a little detail and whatnot. And they all connect Henry in a way. Actually, I wanted to respond to Leighton said as well we're talking about how Henry doesn't kill anyone and if that's a proper representation and whatnot and I think it is a proper representation for the film because that's who Henry is he doesn't think he does anything wrong he he never he gets the life taken away from him but I don't think he ever learns anything and he shares a lot with Jordan Belfort from uh, Wolf of Wall Street in that yeah, way absolutely. Where, yeah absolutely yeah guy's a total shit but doesn't think you know, he, he thinks that there's some sort of moral correctness to what he's doing. Exactly. Yeah, and even to the point in Wolf of Wall Street where Jordan Belfort introduces himself at the end of the film is like very poetic touch in just how self-involved he is. And as Henry is self-involved as well, like that there's a little anecdote about him being like, thanks for not making me an asshole. It's, it's hilarious because... He's an awful person, and he's a person where he would even sell out the closest people to him, the people he shared his life with, just so he could save his neck. Mm. And it shows so much about him. And I think the way the story's told and the way the book's written, too, it's it's such a self-serving story 
And it's just such a like, oh, I was a part of it, but I didn't do anything. It, it, it's a perfect <laughs> like, like, no, you were that guy, too. I think having the side characters juxtaposed to Ray Liotta, because everyone in the film is at least loyal. You know, they they may not be perfect, but the 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 one kind of like positive aspect of each character is loyalty. And Henry is just not that whatsoever. And you can even there's like just little things throughout that make you feel that. And it's interesting to have this outside character kind of infect the life in the, the family that was, you know, they were doing their thing just fine. Then he's the one that brings the drugs in. He's the one that. Yeah. You know, he he brings all the the pain and misery by the end of the film, and, and it all kind of circles back around to the early scene in the film when it when young Henry Hill first gets pinched, and then he has his day in court, and and he goes out, and and, and all of all of the rest of the crew are waiting for him, and, and they're all there cheering him on, they're, they're congratulating him. He says, "Oh, you know," he says to Jimmy, "I thought you'd be mad at me," and he says, "No, no, no, God, no! You learned the two most important lessons in life: never rat on your friends, and always keep your mouth shut." And ultimately, that's what he does. That is his way out. He doesn't mm. keep his mouth shut, and he does rat on people who were, up until a certain point, his friends. I think that the loyalty, though, is very much depend on, for all the characters, what's in it for me. Yeah. You yeah. know, because think of the way that, uh, you know, spoilers alert, but uh, think of the way that Tommy is dispatched. Mm-hmm. You know, he's uh, he thinks that he's True. going to be uh, a made man. He's talking to the guys. Oh, how long has it been since, you know, you've been made, uh, or 30 years? Oh, wow. You know, and then they take him to a room and shoot him. Yeah. You know, so it's you know it's, it's almost like it's just business, and we're all in our business, our own private little companies. Even though we're working as part of a hierarchy, they're all in it for themselves. Yeah, and they'd all do anything to save themselves. Yeah, that harks back to that selfishness, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And can you imagine being in a room with all that? You know, because <laughs> you know I mean? let's talk about the one scene. Maybe, maybe. Arguably the most famous scene in Goodfellas, the funny house scene. Okay, I wish I was big just once. <laughs> <laughs> You're a big guy. You're a really funny. You're really funny. Uh, what do you mean I'm funny? It's, it's funny, you know. It's a good story. It's funny. You're a funny guy. <laughs> what do you mean? You mean the way I talk? What? It's just, you know, you, it's, you're just funny. It's, you know, the way you tell the story and everything. Funny how? I mean, what's funny about it? Tommy, no, you got it all wrong. He's... Oh, oh, Anthony. He's a big boy. He knows what he said. What'd you say? You're right. Funny how? Just... What? Just, you know, you're, you're funny. <laughs> you mean, so? let me understand this, because I don't, you know, maybe it's me, I'm a little fucked up, maybe. But I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. I make you laugh. I'm here to fucking amuse you. What do you mean funny? Funny how? How am I funny? Just, you know how you tell a story. What? No, no, I don't know. You said it. How do I know? You said I'm funny. How the fuck am I funny? What the fuck is so funny about me? Tell me. Tell me what's funny. Get the fuck out of here, Tommy. <laughs> you motherfucker. I almost had him. I almost had him. Stuttering, yeah, stuttering prick yet. Frankie, was he shaking? I wonder about you sometimes, Henry. You may fold under questioning. <laughs> 
I think, Leighton, I think you, either you and me have discussed or maybe you mentioned on the podcast the sort of genesis of that scene and the fact that it's actually, it's nothing to do with Henry Hill. It's actually um, something that was recounted by Joe Pesci, who, when he was growing up, he would hang around with, you know, people of a certain character, people who were portrayed in this film. Yeah. And he once yeah. had a bit of a run-in, not too dissimilar to the run-in, between Henry and Tommy, where Henry calls Tommy a funny guy and Tommy quickly turns on him and kind of, well, it's just one of the most perfectly played and most uncomfortable scenes I think I've ever seen. But the fact that it actually comes from something that really happened to Joe Pesci just makes it just all the more satisfying. Yeah, it's it's totally from Joe Pesci's um, early years, being, as you say, around wise guys then. Mm. And somebody regaling something and him, you know, just haphazardly or offhandly saying, <laughs> that's funny and it escalated mm. from there and it, it, it was utilised completely and I think the film if I remember correctly reading the film was shot with the, the, the two cameras and it was a case of right just talk amongst yourselves and you know regale and make each other laugh and it went from there and on a dime Joe Pesci literally went <clears throat> that funny how and the air was sucked out of the room. Just a myth bust this scene. A lot of people have said, oh, yeah, yeah, that whole thing was ad-libbed. And it's like, well, Kyle, I'm sure I'm sure you'll agree that anyone who knows anything about writing a script, a scene as perfect as that, you're not going to ad-lib it. No way. It, yeah, it, it's something that's... It, it's going, there's going to be a degree of premeditation to that scene and a degree of planning. And, and to say that... Guidance. Guidance, that's right. To say that that is ad-libbed, yeah, it, it's a total myth. Yeah, it, you know, you'll get a line, you know, you'll get a moment that's ad-libbed and that becomes maybe more famous than, you know, whatever you've written like that. that that's a case all the time. But you can't. And this is something that we were talking or we didn't really talk about Scorsese's direction, but the blocking of that scene makes that scene even more impactful because you have everyone kidding around behind Henry and then you have Pesci by himself. And as Pesci gets a little more angry, people start stop laughing and they start getting scared until it finally hits Henry like, oh, he's not kidding around anymore. And you just see the life leave everyone's faces behind. And you just can't make something like that up. You yeah. can't you can't just do that on a whim because it's not only what he's saying, it's it's the reactions of the other actors in the scene that really sell that, sell that and hit it home. Yeah, and, and, and the reason I, I bring that up is because it's something that ties back to the, the, the Jaws episode that Neil and I did when you, you, you sort of dissect and you look into the history of the whole Quint Indianapolis speech. And a lot of people say, yeah, yeah, Robert Shaw, um, you know, he just came up with that on, you know, on the night. And, and it's not true. He was drunk. Yeah. He was just sitting there drunk. A scene that, that, that is that good and is that well written, you're not just going to come up with it on the fly. Because if you do, it literally is going to be like catching lightning in a bottle. It's going to be a, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime you know, event that is just not going to be repeated in, in many films at all. And yeah, it's the same here. You know, it was... There was a basis in reality for it, but it was certainly scripted and it was certainly pre-planned and, and you know, the way that the, the film is set up and shot and blocked. I think, personally, it is still just one of the most incredible scenes and, and certainly, even for a film that's filled with so much violence and so much tension, certainly in that, you know, what I like to call the cocaine-filled last act, you just feel uncomfortable when, when Tommy is putting Henry Hill on the spot and, and you're just squirming in the seat for him. And, and the fact that Henry called him on it and sort of laughed his way out of it. You just, 
everyone gives a big sigh of relief and, and, and afterwards when they're still joshing about with each other and, and you know he says you really are a funny guy and you just it's just like a build up of tension and then a release yeah it's part of the mythology of filmmaking though that uh, this is uh, all um, ad-libbed and you know these people are so talented that they can just do it on the spot you know I mean it's something that goes back to the heyday of Hollywood isn't it that uh, you know the, how good these people are and you know but have you, there's a line right at the end of that scene I don't know if you hear it, when uh, after, you know, um, Tommy's had his bit of his moment and he's thrown over a few, you know, pieces of furniture and he smashed the glass on the bartend on the owner's uh, <laughs> head. And then he says to um, Henry, you ought to be doing this. You're supposed to be doing this, too. And apparently that is the fact that Paulie had wanted the club and from the very beginning. He had sent them in to do things like this and disrupt everything. So the club owner would go to Paulie and ask for help. Yeah, because they never kind of lean on that, do they? No, no, he just says it as like it's offhand it's and then it's a throw, Yeah, it's a throwaway line. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, because obviously then, you know, the guy that owns the club goes cap in hand to Paulie and says, like, you, know, you, you know, this guy's here, he's busting my balls, he's, he's doing this or whatever. And, and Paulie says, what do you want me to do, whack him? Yeah, yeah it would be a uh, bad idea. It would yeah. Be a, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I'm joking, Paulie, I'm joking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. That's a great scene. I love, it is, um, it is. Um, Paul Savino is fantastic in that role. And considering he was three days before filming, he wanted to, you know, quit. Because he didn't think he could do yeah. that. He didn't think he could be this menacing, you know, boss. You know, he, he said that he's, you know, he's a poet and he's a sculpture. You know, he can't do these things. And uh, he was really, really nervous about it. Yeah, because, you know, in, in reality, he's a very jovial guy. I think, you know, I think he does like opera singing. He's, he's just... He's, yeah, know. he's an artist. Yeah, he is. Yeah. He's, I, a, I, he's I, a very genteel, very genteel man. Yeah. And yet he plays this sort of, he doesn't move much, he doesn't say much, but in one look, you know, he can completely get across the fact that he is, he's the guy in charge. You know, he he is the Don Corleone of this little sort of pocket of, of, of the mafioso that, that we're seeing. One thing about the, the title of the film, of course, the book was called Wise Guys and the film is called Goodfellas. Mm. And apparently the reason yeah. for that was because there's a um, the Brian De Palma film, which was released a couple of years before, called Wise Guys. And I just mm. think it's it's such a coincidence that, you know, Joe Pesci is Tommy DeVito and Wise Guys stars Danny DeVito. Yeah. And also <laughs> has, uh, you know, uh, Frank Vincent is in it and uh, even yeah. Kath- Catherine Suscosese is in it and everything and Harvey Keitel, mm. all oh. these people. <laughs> You know, so it's a bit Isn't of a coincidence. A, who, who directed that? Was it um, Brian De Palma? Yeah, Brian De Palma. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. One thing I was going to say, Sky, was about the film having no um, original score and the, the non diegetic sound having music like the classic Layla sequence mm-hmm. and the Derek and the Dominoes and the Sunshine Love sequence, you know, having no dialogue. And only recently reading when they were filming the scenes when. All the people involved with the, the tant that um, heist and the bodies being found, they actually played on set Layla De- by Derek and the Dominoes. So, you know, when you have this the crane shot going into the back of the um, the truck. Yeah. They yeah. actually played the music. Wow. Get the exact on rhythm. On set. Yep. Yep. Yeah, as soon as yeah, the door closes, that's when you hear the symbol from... Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's something mm. that Tony so well pointed out to me. Yeah, and, and I know it's quite... It's quite um, a common thing for people to play different types of music on set to sort of G up the actors and get things going because the, at sometimes, especially if you're making a period film, that if you want energy in the room, then you, the music of the day perhaps doesn't lend itself. So you might have 
you know, bombastic rave music playing, so everybody's a little bit wound up, and this is happening, that's happening. But Scorsese, when he was making Goodfellas, he wanted, as the, as the time was going through the as they were going through the years, he wanted to use music from those years. So that's why it's a soundtrack of Henry Hill's life. To the point when you get to the end with the emergence of punk happening and Sid Vicious right to the end, that's when everything was over for him. And so that sequence when he was getting rid of Stack Edwards and uh, Johnny Rose Beef, best nickname ever, um, <laughs> and his wife, and Anthony Stabile, and all of those characters, he was, he was playing that music live on set so he knew and they knew what was going to happen. It's fascinating to me the correlation Scorsese has. Uh, in casino, I mean, you come onto a casino, especially. There's no original music in casino. That you know the, the, that use of, I'm right. I'm going to put this song into this sequence. There's going to be no dialogue. It's truly, truly fascinating. I think he masters it with uh, Casino, honestly. I think it's really well done in Goodfellas, but I think he perfects that editing style with that kind of music in Casino. I think it's like even to another level. I, I, I wouldn't want to split hairs between the two, but I, I've got to say, both the films... Goodfellas, is, it, it's got a perfect soundtrack. Yep. Every single little piece of music that is used in that film... Soon as then you just started saying about that scene later when we see all the guys which are getting whacked, it, Layla is playing in my head, and it's just the same as when we enter that kind of uh, last act. Harry Nilsson's jump into the fire just immediately. Oh, my, the opening yeah. few bars oh. of that song play in my head. Soon that, as I think about it, and, and yeah, you've got it's the bass. It's the bass, isn't it? It's that. that it, it's something like you, you've got like a timestamp of yeah. Sunday. Eight. It's May May the eleventh, nineteen eighty. Maybe oh, of course it is because it's the week before Empire Strikes Back came out. Yes, it is. <laughs> it is. I was thinking about the other day. I was thinking, oh yeah, I, 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 I haven't watched Goodfellas now since I haven't actually watched in preparation for this episode. Last time I watched it is when is the week that I saw The Irishman. Shouldn't have done that because unfortunately The Irishman didn't favour for me as well as Goodfellas because I was. It just reminded me of for me Scorsese at his absolute best, but. It was that scene I saw it come up. I'm thinking, ah, oh, that was actually a week before Empire Strikes Back came up. You have proved your geek yep. credentials. Now. Yeah, there you go. I'm carrying my geek card. I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to argue. Yeah, so yeah, from from the time we see that that timestamp on screen and the opening bars of Jump Into the Fire play, it, it goes into this last act that is just, you know... I was going to be busy all day. I had to drop off some guns at Jimmy's to match some silencers he had gotten. I had to pick up my brother at the hospital and drive him back to the house for dinner that night. And then I had to pick up some new Pittsburgh stuff for Lois to fly down to some customers I had near Atlanta. Right away, I knew he didn't want them. I knew I was going to get stuck for the money. I only bought the damn guns because he wanted them, and now he didn't want them. 
What the fuck are these things? They're not fit. What's the matter with you? What do, we, what do you want me to pay for this shit? I'm not paying for it. I didn't say a thing. Jimmy was so pissed off, he didn't even say goodbye. Stop with those fucking drugs. They're making your mind into mush. You hear me? Take them back. How, how do you get... And, and I think maybe the only time I've ever felt this tense is, is in two films. The firecracker scene in Boogie Nights. Fantastic. A, a, a film which I saw in the cinema, which I actually, I think, was actually also shot by Michael Balhouse as well. I'm, I'm pretty sure that he lends Boogie Nights. Yes. But it's that whole scene with Alfred Molina and the little, I think he's Vietnamese guy, that's chucking the, 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 the firecrackers. <laughs> and then you've got... Like the guys just sat there, and this drug deal we know is just going to go completely wrong. The, the build-up of tension is just palpable. And there's another time since that I've seen it, and that was last year with Uncut Gems. I was going to say the same oh, exact thing. Oh, yeah. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> I think in, in our review of 2019, I, I, I think I may have put Uncut Gems in as a last-minute entry. or what, However, I, I, I described it as one point as just being pure anxiety on the screen for the duration of the film and that's how the film makes me feel and this whole last act of goodfellas makes me feel exactly the same it's just tension anxiety and this uncomfortable feeling of things just going wrong the music is just absolutely perfect in those yeah. that scene and there's you know quite a few songs uh, one of my favorite songs of all time managed by by muddy waters in there when they cut it up the coke and it's just you know so so perfect yeah I'm a Rolling Stone. That yes, one, that's the one. That's yeah, the one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah there, there's George Harrison's in it. Uh, solo Mick Jagger, at least three Stone songs. Um, the aforementioned Harry Nielsen. But I've always thought, do you know that sequence? So we run about Thelma Shoemaker and editing in that. I, I, I think as brilliantly edited as that sequence is, I think it's purposely sloppy if that makes sense, in as much that, you know, they're rolling from one thing to the other, to the other, to the other. Yeah. It's it's meant to be haphazard, you know, the sudden cuts and the sudden close-ups, and, and and it's purposely haphazard to give that frenzy added oomph, emphasis, mm. and everything it, with it. It's a bad trip, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's uh, it, it's, it's a bad experience, isn't it? And I think that is the the, the, the genius of Thelma Shoemaker, isn't it? Who, coincidentally, I think, Sky, I think she's edited every single Martin Scorsese film. No, I, no, I, I might be wrong. No, I, I think she started with, was it um, possibly Out of Hours, maybe? After Hours. Uh, after Hours, sorry, yes. Yeah. Um, I, thought, I, thought, I thought she did pretty much everything from Mean Streets onwards. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I, I I thought she'd done everything that she, oh, unless everything that she has done has been with Martin Scorsese. I think the first time she no, she did Raging Bull. Yeah, she, she did Raging Bull. Yeah, she did Raging Bull, King of Comedy, After Hours, Color of Money, and I think pretty much everything after that. Oh, so was, right, um, there we are then. Sorry, seventy nine onwards. I, then, was it? I stand corrected once again. Yeah, Rage, Raging Bull onwards in nineteen eighty. Yeah, <laughs> might as well start somewhere. So mm-hmm. oh, she did a Bad. who's knocking at my door too. Did she? Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. So oh. she's been around for a while. She did not do Taxi Driver or Mean Streets. So they've they've had a relationship for almost five decades well, now. Did, did you know Scorsese was responsible for introducing Thelma Shoemaker to Michael Power, and they ultimately became husband and wife? Yeah, because oh, um, wow. yeah, because Scorsese has been obviously a huge you know fan of, of Paul and Pressburger, and yeah, they, they yeah. were close friends. Yeah, yeah. up until his death. 
So obviously good fellas, no one's disputing what an amazing film it is, but unfortunately come the awards season, or, or certainly come the Academy Awards the following year, it didn't kind of get the recognition that you know we all think that it should have. Without going into the whys and what fours and the fact that Dances with Wolves was the you know the Academy darling that year, I think Steve you summed it up best when you said on a previous episode the fact that the Academy Awards shouldn't be honouring the films of that year or the preceding year. They should actually be honouring films from 10 years before because it certainly yeah. takes at least 10 years for I think a film to attain classic status. And as much as I don't think anyone was ever disputing the fact that Goodfellas from day one was an absolute out-and-out classic, for whatever reason, you know, the Academy chose not to give it the, the sort of credit and the honours that it deserved. Yeah, I've, I've got nothing against, you know, Dancers of Wolves winning. I, I mean, I really enjoy the film. I still do today. But yes, I, I am a firm believer that, you know, the best film of 2010 should be awarded this year. Yes, I agree. Good method. Social Network? Well, 2010. Um, That's a good question. Uh, is there a better film in 2010 than The Social Network? I don't know. That's a mm. fantastic film. <laughs> I don't think so. You, yeah. I, yeah, I wouldn't. I, yeah, I think I'd go Social Network. Possibly, possibly. Yeah, obviously Goodfellas, an undisputed classic, one of the all-time great films. And then five years later, Martin Scorsese, he... he tap back into that kind of same well, that creative well that in many ways sort of caused this film to kind of get, I think, unfairly overlooked in his body of work. And that film is 1995's Casino. When you love someone, you've got to trust them. There's no other way. You've got to give them the key to everything that's yours. Otherwise, what's the point? And for a while, I believed that's the kind of love I had. Guys, what is what was your first introduction to that film? Well, just with every other Scorsese film, I went to see it in the cinema specifically because Scorsese was attached to it, and that was it, you know. It's the same reason why I'd seen Age of Innocence and uh, Cape Fear, and I'd go to see um, Kundun and Bring Out the Dead, you know. I, that's, that's enough. I don't need to know anything else. I'm already excited for Killers of the Flower Moon, and it hasn't even started filming yet. Have you read the book, Steve? I have, yes. Fantastic it's book. fantastic, isn't it? Yes, Fantastic. Yes. I, heard, I read it before I knew it was going to be um, into a film. And, uh, All um, right, show off. I was thinking at the time, this would be, this this got to be made into a film. This is like, uh, it's, it's such a, a moving story, I think, that it's going to be fantastic. Yeah, definitely, definitely. See, now, unfortunately for me, back in 1995, I was, at the time, more interested in girls and football. Mm-hmm. Films were not, they weren't, you know, that high on my list of priorities. So, unfortunately, I'm ashamed to say I didn't see Casino in the cinema. In fact, 1995 being one of my favourite years of film. You know, we, we've done a favourite five segment in our, I think it was our Captain Marvel episode, where uh, the guys and I discussed our favourite films from 1995. And Casino was one of those films, along with, I think, Usual Suspects, uh, Heat and a number of others. But yeah, it was, again, this was one of those films that I discovered um, during my early 20s when I was going through my hardcore sort of Scorsese education. And 
as much as I felt completely head over heels in love with Goodfellas straight away, it was exactly the same with, with Casino. And for me, the films have, they've been neck and neck for a long time. I won't argue the Casino is a better film than Goodfellas because I don't think it is. But for me, it's up there and it is one of the films that I've watched more than any other film because for that, a couple of years, there were a few Scorsese films I would literally just watch endlessly on repeat and Casino was one of them. But Kyle, were you even with us in 1995? <laughs> nope, I was two years away. But um, holy shit! Yeah. <laughs> I feel old. Uh, it's like talking to Hayden. <laughs> was it negative uh, two? Is it? Well, I think H- yeah. Hayden, Hayden was actually he was around in 1995. Was he? Yeah, yeah. Leighton, <laughs> what about yourself? I think I no, I didn't see Casino for whatever daft reason. Music, football, girls growing up, mm-hmm. independence, etc., etc. I definitely saw Seven. I definitely saw The Usual Suspects. I distinctly remember going to see Species because that was the same year. (laughs) Did I see Heat? I can't recall if I'm honest, but I know I didn't see Casino. When I I saw Casino in the Mind, um, weirdly, the first hint of Casino I saw, a subscriber to a certain uh, magazine, and when it came through the post, a video came through with a bunch of trailers, 45 minutes of trailers. I I remember that, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Heat, Heat was on there, whatever Disney movie the other day was on there, and Casino's on there. And I was thinking, wow, Scorsese, De Niro, Pesci, Mobsters, Las Vegas. And it was like, wow. And then I didn't see it until it came on video. And I, I loved it. I did love it the first time I saw it. And we'll get into the whys and wherefores. I don't think it's Scorsese's better films, if I'm honest. I think it's a tremendous film. I, in and of itself, I really do think it's tremendous. It's not Goodfellas Part 2, far from it. But is it the better Scorsese? I think there's better myself personally. Well, I think before we go into this sort of deep, dark hole of discussion where I might end up um, liking you a little bit less, Leighton. <laughs> Given the <laughs> not, fact that you... Not hard, not hard. Hey, come on. <laughs> Given the fact you did so well with your little appraisal of Goodfellas, can you do the same for Casino? But can you make oh, it sound like to? you're not reading it? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, how does this sound? Uh, Martin Scorsese's 1995 adaption of the book Casino, Lebanon in Las Vegas by Nicholas Pileggi, both of whom would write the screenplay. Hang on, hang on, sorry, that sounds familiar. Is the story of the infiltration of the mafia in a Las Vegas casino scene by Sam Ace Rothstein, played by Robert De Niro, a bookmaker for the mafia who became a pioneer in the development of the gambling bookmaking in Las Vegas and his childhood friend, Nicky Santoro, a mob enforcement providing protection and takes his criminal activity into an unsuspecting Nevada. Then there's Sam's glamorous, unstable wife, Ginger, and her lifestyle and the effects that she has on events. Was that right off the top of my head? or Excellent. Yeah, very good. Right, so Leighton, obviously then, yes. straight out of the gate, Goodfellas is your favourite film. And yes. is this kind of like the Jaws 2 to Jaws? It, it's the film that, for you, isn't as good, but you can still appreciate it? I would never make that comparison. Jaws 2 is a good film. I don't care what anyone says. <laughs> oh, I, I fucking love Jaws 2. Me as well. I love Jaws 2. I, I haven't seen Jaws 2 since I was a kid because nothing will be better or as good as Jaws almost. Not the same I, level at all. No, it's still no, no, no. And you can enjoy I, it on its own. I've never seen Jaws 2. Oh, Ooh. wow. <laughs> Confession corner. 
it's do you know, if, guys, if it wasn't for COVID, right, and and the effects it's had on our 2020 schedule for the Film 89 podcast, you would have already had a follow-up to our Jaws commentary. You would have had a Jaws 2 commentary from Neil and I. Myself, Neil and Richie, um, he would have joined us as well. But yeah, maybe that's an unfair comparison. But go on then, Leighton, take us through why you think Casino is inferior to Goodfellas. It's a, it's, it's a very, very, very good film. There is no doubt in the quality of Casino as a film itself. Casino's biggest problem is, is that it's two main protagonists, its director, are responsible for arguably one of, if not the greatest gangster film ever made. It's a, it's a, it's a comparison, unfortunately, that, level, that in some respects gets leveled towards Godfather Part Three. Godfather Part Three, a film on its own, isn't a bad film, but the two films preceding are masterpieces, and the new Coda, whatever it's called, version has come out today, I think it is, isn't it? Oh. And whether or not that improves the viewing experience, we'll have to wait and see. I personally don't think Godfather Three is that bad a film. I think it's got some tre- it's it's got some tremendous moments. As I said, though, the problem is God, it's got the two preceding films. To compare itself against Casino almost falls within that bracket, albeit that Casino has better acting across the board. And this isn't a dig at Sophia Coppola in any way, shape, or form, it just has better acting across the board. You could argue Godfather 3, um, uh, what's his name? Not Lee Van Cleef, Eli Wallach. Eli Wallach is wasted, he's yes, he's, a, he is. he's just in the background, he's, yeah, he's in yeah. the background, and you know, somebody like that. If he's taking the, the, the Tom Hagen role, mm. then he should be a bigger part of it, you know, yeah. because you're investing in Tom Hagen and Eli Wallach is wasted in that. And that's the that's the natural comparison I personally can make because Casino is its own entity, but unfortunately it will forever be associated to Goodfellas. There's going to be people who prefer, you know, casinos, a casino to Goodfellas, which is fine, dandy, but they're wrong as far as I'm concerned, because <laughs> Casino, as fabulous as it is, it looks amazing, it sounds amazing, everybody is brilliant, and it's Sharon Stone, never been better. But if you're talking between the two, Casino isn't even top five Scorsese. Oh, it's not. Right, I didn't look, I think yeah. the person that should stand in now and take the helm is going to be Steve, because Steve, if Leighton's going to be making comparisons to the gulf between the quality of Godfather Part 1 and 2 and Godfather Part 3, given the fact that you wrote an amazing piece for the website about the Godfather 3 in defence of the Godfather Part 3, do you think, Steve, that the gulfing quality between Goodfellas and Casino is the same as the gulfing quality between Godfather Part 3 and the previous two films? Ah, don't do that to me. Come on, Steve. (laughs) You can... (laughs) Steve, you beat COVID. You beat COVID, so you you can answer this question. Um, okay, I would say that the difference between Goodfellas and Casino, if there is a difference at all, is so wafer thin that it's unnoticeable. That is as good an answer as I could have given. Perfect. Thank you, Steve. You know, that's, that's what I can say. Kyle, are you with us? I am actually more with Leighton. I love the film. Wow. And it's only been recently that I've felt this way. But I think it's because you don't have any character that's as interesting as Henry, at least for me. And I, I like Ace is an interesting character, and Joe Pesci's character is interesting. And to to be uh, perfectly honest, Billy Sherbert's my favorite Scorsese character in any Scorsese movie. I love Don Rickles; he's fantastic yeah. in the film. Oh, but, oh yes. 
But I think the movie is a little bloated in in some parts, and I it, it just I feel like some things go on longer than they should, and it it has the kinetic energy, and I think on a technical level, it's a perfect movie, and I think in the acting, it's a perfect movie. I just feel like the structure of the story is a little more bloated than the contained story you had with Goodfellas. Everything that happens in Goodfellas, I I don't know what you would change in Goodfellas. In Casino, I feel like there's probably a 15, 20 minutes you could cut out of it and you would still have the same movie by the end of the day. Uh, With that being said, it's a Martin Scorsese movie and it's still better than two thirds of movies you're ever going to watch. But I would agree with Leighton. It's a little bit of a tear down compared to what Goodfellas and Taxi Driver and Raging Bull would be on. I, I'm clearly with Steve on this one. Clearly. I, I really <laughs> am. And if you went back in time, maybe 18, 20 years and asked younger me what my favorite Scorsese film was, there was a time when I would have said Casino. That's no longer the case. I would have as well. I, I'm with you. I think that Cas- Casino is... For me, a 10 out of 10. Now, does that mean it's a perfect film? Well, mathematically, you could say it does. But then there's a lot of films that, for whatever reason, I would consider, when you compare them against their peers, to be a 10 out of 10 film. This film is one of them. But I will happily concede to Leighton that Goodfellas is a more perfect film. (laughs) Okay? It it really is. And But then what I will say in defense of Casino is the story... Bearing in mind that you're making comparisons to the main character, the fact that he's more interested in. The fact is, and this, this goes back to those elements of authenticity and truth that I brought up, because I knew they would come back in later. Mm-hmm. And the main thing being that this is the testimony of a guy that is telling a story in order to save his own skin, whereas the events as depicted in Casino are far wider and more accurately documented because they relate to things. And the, the guy that is based on, it's not, it wasn't Sam Rothstein, was it? He, he, uh, Frank Lefty Rosenthal. Frank Lefty Rosenthal, yeah, of course yeah. he did, right. Yeah. The events of his life and how he rose up in the ranks of you know, the sort of top bosses of, of the Las Vegas casino empire, that's pretty well documented in court cases, in you know his various applications for, for a gambling license and things like that. And there's certain things that can't be disputed because they're actual fact, whereas You've got to look back at Goodfellas. So much of that story that Henry Hill was telling could have been manipulated and moulded even after the event when the book was being written just to make it sound a little bit more enticing and a bit more romantic. So from that point of view, Casino is always going to be at a disadvantage because it's more of an accurate historic retelling than Goodfellas with far less sort of leeway for license to be taken. I, I think one of the differences is that uh, Goodfellas is the, the main character is Henry Hill. In Casino, the main character is the Casino, and that's what's oh, that's so, a good uh, point. you know yeah. that's what's it's so interesting. Yeah, I think we've also got three main characters because I think Sam, Nikki, and Ginger, and the eventual sort of poisonous love triangle that forms there is far more equally shared than in Goodfellas, and I think it's also telling a different story. Like you say, Steve, it's not about the characters. It's about Las Vegas and about how Las Vegas had this sort of roots with the mob and then due to various things, greed and, you know, just a change in times and and the fact that ultimately it's like a snake eating itself. And it caused the down, yeah. It caused it caused the downfall of the foundations of Las Vegas, which then in turn led to yeah. this sort of new thing where the Teamsters came in and similar sort of foundation, but a different entity than the one it was before. Yeah, I, I think I from that point of view, I think I, like you look at the Godfather, 
but and then this I think this is the difference between Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese. Coppola is operatic, it's grandeur, it, it's things on a big romantic scale. And I think with Scorsese, with Goodfellas, with Mean Streets, with films like that, it, it's down street level gritty. And I think with Casino, he went more towards that sort of operatic, romantic sort of approach. The glitz and the glamour. Yeah, the, the glitz, glitz and, and the, the glamour, even so much as if yeah. you look at the way the film is shot, like Goodfellas is in 1.85 to 1, whereas with Casino, he went scope. He wanted the wide mm. vistas of that desert. Like you imagine that shot where Sam Rothstein is stood as a little speck in the the you know the the, the right frame when he goes into the desert to meet Nikki. I'd, I'd I'd even hark back to the scene where the uh, Japanese businessman is coming back to the hotel. <laughs> yes. KK Ichikawa. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's exactly the same, isn't it? You know. Yeah. It's it's the it's the it's not all right. He's not in the distance, but still. You know, it's the grandeur of the Tangiers behind him, isn't it? It is. Yeah. So, you know, fill in, fill in the, the empty spaces, giving it its all. And the thing is, everything is lit. The suits are lit as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, with those, those garish colours, you know. Everything is put on the screen, isn't it? It is, it is. It is operatic, though. But I would also say that, you know, it, it shows you the grandeur of the stage, but then it peeks around the corner behind the curtains. Yes. Yeah, and, yep. and and it shows you the the um, the grime and the dirt and the and the um, you know behind the, the scenes. Yes, yes, yeah. You know, and all oh, yeah, all, all the stuff that we don't see. I mean, the, the sausage making, so to speak. You know? <laughs> mm. you know, that kind of thing. You know, and I, I think that's why for me, it just works wonderfully. Is it's the it's the marriage between the opera and the grime of you know what happens behind the scene uh, behind the curtain. Yeah, I think in my mind, I know that, you know, put a gun to my head and, and ask me which is the better film. I'm, I'm going to say Goodfellas because I, mm-hmm. I think it is. It's a film completely without flaws. As much as I can't fault Casino from a purely enjoyment point of view, yeah, you could argue it may be a little bit bloated. The characters are not as interesting, but it is a different story, even though, you know, Scorsese at the time was criticised for making Goodfellas Part 2, you know, a spiritual sequel to Goodfellas as such. He was telling a different story in a similar fashion to the way he told Goodfellas. And I don't think you can hold that against Casino because there's no other way to tell this story. And as you said, Kyle, no. you know, the editing in Casino is absolutely spot on. I, I won't I, I, I don't agree that it's better than Goodfellas. And I don't think that this the, the, you know the song choices are better, but they're certainly as good as. I even have heard criticism, the fact that oh he's using Gimme Shelter again. You're really going to crib from your own previous film? The only time that becomes redundant is in The Departed. Like, the, that completely agree. Yes. Completely agree. I but completely Departed agree. is the greatest hits version of this style of film he makes. Like, it, Absolutely. Like, it's, you know, Absolutely. With, Kyle, you know, it's perfectly used. Perfectly used. Kyle is so right there. Yeah. So right. Yeah, no... I think the comparisons a lot of people make, which I don't agree with about Casino compared to Goodfellas, I see more of, yeah, you know, The Departed is more that film. I think that's more a film where Scorsese should have actually had a little bit more self-control. I don't think he should have allowed Jack Nicholson to be as scenery-chewing as he was. My favourite actor and my least favourite performance of his. But can we all agree, though, that Departed is a good film, though, isn't it? It's a very good film. It is a good film, but what I would say... Yeah, what I would say to people who, who laud The Departed and go on about Great Dad is I'll say, go and watch Infernal Affairs. Go and watch the original. Yeah, totally. Much. They're two totally different films. They are two totally know, different, different stories. stories the same. But I think yeah, it's overall where the story's told in a stronger way with the original. 
Yeah, and I think Scorsese gets a lot of credit for that film being like, oh, wow, you know, it's, it's got such great twists and whatever. It's like, yeah, it's a remake of another film. And don't get me wrong, Scorsese can do great remakes. He did a great remake in Cape Fear. But yeah. when he got that Oscar, I think we all agree, guys, that that was an honorary Oscar. It won 100%. Heart. Oh, yeah. He should have got Best Director for Taxi Driver. He 100% should have got it over Ordinary People in 1980 for Raging Bull. That's a travesty. You know, that is a... And who talks about ordinary people now? Over right. I've, ne- I've never seen ordinary people. I don't know anybody that has seen ordinary people. It's if depressing. any of you gentlemen have, my hat is my hat. I, I've never seen it. I've never seen it. I don't, I'm, other than you say, tell me you've seen it now, I don't know anybody else who's seen it, honestly. It's a, it's a, it's a fine film. It's, it's a fine you know, film. It's, it's okay. It's dated. It's, yeah. you know, it was good while we were watching it, but it's no masterpiece. No. It was the name value of Robert Redford. Yeah, well, does, does that does that lend itself again then back to 1991 Kevin Costner winning for Dances with Wolves? Ten could years be, apart. Could be star power. You know, could be a thing. Star power, you know, one of our own. Let's recognize that they've made a very good film. So we're going to say you're in the circle. I'm not trying to spread rumor, cast dispersion, etc., etc. But isn't it funny how? Fu- funny how? Mm. <laughs> but. <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> I, I I will give the answer later. I th- I know Steve will give. I, I you sit me and Steve and I, I know Richie Roberts feels the same. You sit us down and you make us watch Dancing with Wolves. And by the end, we're a gibbering mess. Yeah, I'm never gonna go against Dancing. No, I can't. I, I can't go against yeah. it. I, I'm not gonna say it's as good a film. It's not. It's it's not as good. I'm not. I think it's a good film. It's not a great film. Though. Oh, I I, I, I I think it's a masterpiece. I you really think. I, even even in say... its admittedly bloated extended form, which is I think near enough fifty minutes longer, I do think Dances of Wolves is a masterpiece, and I'm not going to get on board this thing of, you know, I I can even say I can acknowledge the fact that Forrest Gump is in many respects a good film, nowhere near, nowhere near the greatest film of 1994, not whilst the Shawshank Redemption and Pulp Fiction exist, and that is the one, the one film that shouldn't have won Best Picture. In, in, in any particular year over other films which should have but I think the difference in quality between Dances with Wolves and Goodfellas is far closer there and for that reason as much as I think yeah, Goodfellas I is a better film I'm not going to begrudge the awards that Dances with Wolves got I, I, I'm not saying it is that they, they're Ordinary People or Dances with Wolves are bad films I'm not going to say that because I haven't seen one and I've only seen the other but out of the t- out of those films, then those films that win best Oscars, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, mm-hmm. This is an argument goes on for any other films, right? When you look through the timeline, the ones that have got the enduring popularity, yeah, it's not that many during the award series. You still go, mm-hmm. oh, hang on now. There's you know your Cuckoo's Nest, the Godfathers, and Silas Lambs, and it, it's frustrating. I find it frustrating personally because. Goodfellas the best one ever made. And, <laughs> but coming back to Casino, Casino was nominated for technical rather than, and Sharon Stone was nominated for best supported actress. Was Robert Richardson but, nominated for his cinematography? He should have been. Casino uh, nominated for best supporting actress, sorry, actress in leading role, Sharon Stone. She didn't win. Uh, I'd argue that she should have. I think she's, she was phenomenal. It's her best role. And that was the only Oscar nomination that Casino had, which personally, Wow. I think it's no. Incredible. Yeah. That's not even production design. Uh, editing, Thelma Shoemaker should have won. And I'll, I'll say not even over other films production. of that year. Right? Cinematography, Robert Richardson, he didn't even get nominated. That's funny. It is, yeah, wow. it's not criminal. 
And that is why I think Goodfellas is an undisputed classic, but people like yourself, Leighton and Kyle, that sort of put Casino in that mid-tier. And again, you know, I, I can see why. I, I can, to a degree. But then I will always fight Casino's corner because I, I do think if you go back in time and you erase Goodfellas from the timeline, everyone now will be automatically, by way of default, bumping Casino up a few numbers in that list of greatest Scorsese films ever made because I just think I, it's I impossible. I don't think I would. I think I it's think imp- I well, I, I don't think it's possible to to watch Casino without thinking back to Goodfellas because you've got De Niro, Pesci, you, you you've got Frank Vincent back there. You know, I, I don't think Leighton that we can. I don't think we can cut ourselves off. If from you that. watch it, it's a detriment to the film, but it's not the film's fault because of our memory. It just shares so much of the same lifeblood. It does. Goodfellas. Yeah. But and even saying it's not on a same plane as it, it's not again a, a knock on the film because if you watch it as an individual piece of art, it's incredible. It's perfectly made. Everything about it is just impeccable in the mm-hmm. technical aspects and in the acting. It just comes to preference, and also I, I there's just a few movies that Scorsese has made where it's like, what would you change? What would you do different? And there is a few arguments with Casino and some other of his films where you're like, it's great, but there is a few things that might be off-putting to some people or whatnot. But what are those things then, guys? Come on, let's lay it bare. I think I think it's the it's the runtime for me, and I don't have a problem with runtime most of the time. Like Wolf of Wall Street breaks the three hour mark, mm-hmm. but I I feel with that film, it, you know, again, it's more on a Goodfellas level where I would there isn't a thing I would cut out of that movie because all the excess and it plays into its story as well. With Casino, I don't know, I wasn't. I, I get the love triangle is a whole thing, and it actually happened, and it's the fact of the story. It didn't grip me as much. Because by that point, Sharon Stone's such a shitty character already as like a person where I didn't I, I was it was more masochistic just watching her just ruin this guy's life and having him ruin her life all at the same time. It wasn't as enjoyable as seeing Henry go through his struggle for me. And again, it's the problem with these two films coming out when they did so close to each other hmm. and also being in the same genre. Like for me personally, I just. I think some of it is sidestep, but everything with Joe Pesci is fantastic. And everything when it's De Niro working the casino is fantastic and on par with anything Scorsese has done. I just I think the I think it's the romance for me specifically that loses me at some points. You know, I think the problem with casino is this, right? And we've fallen into this trap. We are comparing it with Goodfellas. Yep. We're not actually talking about the film itself. No. And and that's what a lot of people do. You know, they, yeah. they just yeah. as soon as you mention Casino, they mention Goodfellas. They they don't actually think about the film itself. They just think of the comparison. Yeah, yeah, I, I I completely agree with what you both said. I will say that I think the Wolf of Wall Street. Going back to what Kyle said, nothing is wasted in its three and a half hours or whatever it is running time with the Wolf of Wall Street. You have to have that excess, as Kyle quite rightly said. But nothing is wasted. I think with Casino a little bit, do we really need to see the money being taken to the to the what do they call it um, back home? Do you the need to see that? And, uh, yeah, <laughs> do you need to see that being yes. happening every single time? And those old men sat around the table every single time. You 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 don't need to see that. We know what's happening when he's going into the counting room. Yeah, but I think we do because it, it's all about it's about the downfall of an empire, and it doesn't happen in one cataclysmic explosion. It's brick by brick it gets taken down. 
Yeah, and that I, goes I, behind I, the the I, behind the curtain thing too. Like it's yeah, the mechanism. Exactly. Yeah, the mechanism but of as you come in towards the end of the film, you've seen that enough times to know what's going to happen. So when Franklin Sen goes on the, that that last but one or last occasion, and he's asked, it, it is you know the guy banging the Jews broad, etc. Right. Well, we don't need to see him getting on a plane, and you know you could trim those little bits out, and those little bits they do count to the whole, don't they? Yeah, but those those bits then lead to the bit where we get Frank Vincent having a bit of voiceover, and, and literally, I'm yeah, like, I'm, I'm not saying I'm not saying get rid of that. I'm just saying, do we need to see him getting into a car, getting into a plane, getting off the plane? Do we, and yeah, but I it's think done so a, well. The editing is done so well. I've got no problem. I with agree. It. It's, not, I, it's, I, it's not a matter of somebody I, I, getting in and then following the journey. It's cut, 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 cut. Yeah, but the thing is, by that by that point in the film, you're talking an hour and a half, so we know where that journey is. I just think from a point of view, you know, this film is two minutes shy of three hours long, and for me, like I do with a lot of long films, I'll often watch them in instalments, and a film like Casino, I won't have to sit down and watch, first off, because I'm that familiar with the film, that, you know, I can pretty much probably quote it verbatim, but it just doesn't lag for me at any point. No, I, I agree completely. I, I, wouldn't say, I wouldn't say it lags. And even, even right... And on my most recent viewing, which was, well, it was yesterday, when I even become conscious of a scene maybe going on a few seconds longer than it should, take, for example, the scene where one of a number of occasions that Ginger leaves Sam and comes back, and it's a scene where he's lying in bed, she comes back, lays on the bed, she's laying there in her mink coat, and there's silence between them. And it goes on maybe a little bit longer than it should before he reaches over and grabs her hand. But if he reached over and grabbed her hand a little bit quicker, you'd be like, you've forgiven her too quickly. And then you'd yeah. be too much of a pushover. It's it's a different paced film to Goodfellas. Goodfellas is cocaine filled from the get go, whereas Casino, because it's more operatic, it's a different pace. And I think you're expecting the same pace because there's so many similarities between the casting, between the fact that it's the same writer. I think you're making comparisons with a film and maybe need to account for the fact that it's also a different beast and is telling a different story yeah. from different angles with a similar sheen and gloss which makes it look like more of a similar film to Goodfellas than I think it actually is. Again, I'm not going to argue too much about this because I do agree that Goodfellas is a better film but I will just always defend Casino because I, I just think, for me, it is top tier Scorsese. I don't think there's any other film in Scorsese's uh, filmography that's going to push Casino out of my personal Martin Scorsese top five. No, it's like saying that K2 is not an impressive mountain because it's not Everest. Ah, uh, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> that, That's a perfect mountain. And, that, and that's the really the argument, though. You're comparing the film with someone that's reached the highest level yeah. of filmmaking. So it's, you know, tomato, tomato at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. It's like whatever you prefer is, is still going to be a great film because it's a Martin Scorsese film. Yeah. And like, again, the, the technical prowess of Casino impresses me more than Goodfellas in some ways because I, I think the cinematography is beautiful. I'm not saying Goodfellas isn't shot well at all, but it is that operatic feel that you get. And it's really cinematic in its just every movement and every little piece of pacing. And with Casino, I love the bits in the actual like, casino lobbies and the floors and whatnot because it lets you breathe in that world. It lets you sit at the tables with them. It lets you really get to feel what it was like back in the you know 70s. It does. I, I, and, you know, going back to the amazing casting of Goodfellas, right? Let's look at Casino. Apart from the main players, you've got James Woods as Lester Diamond. 
I hate him in a good way. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's just a total sleazeball. He's a scumbag. And you think, why the hell does this beautiful woman, Ginger McKenna, gravitate towards this guy? time after time after time and then you've got you know you said Carl, your favorite character in it is billy shiver played by don rickles <laughs> He's... Hey, better it happened down here than up there you know yeah yeah, yeah. god forbid <laughs> yeah as he, as he takes the guy off the plane this is perfect yep. yeah you know alan yes. king as andy stowe kevin pollack as, as philip green you know the, 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 the sort of squeaky clean front man right he's a stool pigeon isn't he, he is it he is but but guys stalwart of many a western film right lq jones the scene yep. where, <laughs> right, where Pat Webb, County Commissioner Pat Webb, goes to visit Sam Rothstein. It oh, is, it's know. just, I could, I'll, I'll just take that little innocuous scene between two actors uh, and, and, and highlight that as, as just why this is, for me, a perfect film. You've got, right, why is Sam sat behind his it's desk the, without his trousers without on? Without his trousers on. <laughs> <laughs> it's because, because he's that obsessed with appearance and everything being perfect that he doesn't want his pants to be creased when he stands up, so he hangs them in the, in, in the, in the closet. It's the, it's the ring me after four minutes. Yeah, ring me after says. four minutes, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Because but I know this conversation is going to go on longer than I wanted to. I'm going to want you to interrupt me because I'm going to want to cut things short because nothing he's going to say is going to change the fact that his brother-in-law was an idiot and I sacked him <laughs> and he's not coming back. It, it's like the cool kind of calculated way that LQ Jones deals with Sam and the fact that he's incredibly polite, but the fact that, yeah, and, and he, he, he keeps saying, you know, is it, is it maybe, you know, somewhere further down the trough that we could find a, you know, he, he tries, he does try and Sam is just rigid and, and immovable and in all fairness to, to Pat Webb, he is flexible. When it gets to the point where he realizes he's not going to win Sam over, he kind of turns things and, and says, people never will understand that, you know, you, you're just, just our guests. Yeah, it's 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 the little gaps of silence in yeah. that scene as well, isn't it? That mm-hmm. those little pauses—they're not massive, no. But it's the it, it's the as the cut between the two, you know, the blocking shots there. Yeah. In between the two, and it's just those little moments where nothing is said, and De Niro's steadfast, isn't he? He's not moving, he and is. his eye lighting doesn't change. It's 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 brilliant. It, it is. is. Uh, Absolutely brilliant. You know, it reminds me, right, of um, in um, The Godfather when um, Tom Hagen goes to visit Jack Waltz. Yes. You know, I, I think yeah. that what um, Webb needed to do was, you know, cut off the head of a horse or something and leave it in... Um... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> something like that. If I'm going to be digging deep to sort of fight the corner of Casino and we talk about that, you know, that key scene in Goodfellas, both at the beginning and then halfway again through the film where we see the murder of Billy Bats and him being stabbed and shot in the trunk and it just being sickening violence, but there for a purpose. All I'll say is three things. Pen, vice, baseball bat. <laughs> well, the vice um, scene was um, only put on there as, as a, like a, a giveaway, wasn't it, they said, mm-hmm. to, because um, yeah. to the uh, to the censors thinking, oh, you know, Okay, we'll we'll cut this for you if you let us yeah. keep some other scenes. So they were really surprised when it, and I'm surprised <laughs> even even today. I'm surprised. It's brutal. Scorsese actually edited that scene himself and presented it to the MPAA in a fashion where he removed enough frames that he knew what the MPA would object to. And I think in the end they wanted they wanted him to remove it altogether. But he he stood his ground. Yeah, I, I wouldn't like to say I'd like to see the uncut version because I, I would imagine it. It's horrific. I'm sure I've seen something where you see the eye pop. It's not on my version, but I'm sure I have. You see enough frames to see that there was some sort of like balloon sort of makeup prosthetic which had his eye bulging out. 
and you don't see anything more than that. It's literally two frames or three frames. But it's enough it's to so make you... The yeah. sound, yeah. the little... Yeah. It's yeah. perfect. If, we, if, if, if we're talking about sound, then the sound of the baseball bats, it's that dull thud, isn't it? And yeah. Even if we've never heard the sound of a baseball hat, bat hitting something, it's two baseball bats at one point as well, isn't it? It is, yeah. <laughs> and I, I think I will say, right, I think that I think the Nicky Santoro is, is not as likeable as Tommy DeVito. And, oh, he's a fucking arsehole. Yes. He? He's a total <laughs> Which is you, why... You're quite glad to see him get brutally buried alive, isn't it? Yes, and and when that scene finally comes, it's so satisfying. You know, in a way that part of the reason why Game of Thrones just left a bitter taste in my mouth is when Ramsay Snow finally met his demise, it was nowhere near as bad as he deserved. But when Nicky Santoro meets his demise and gets to see his brother beaten to death and chucked in a in a dusty hole in in the middle of a cornfield, and then the same happens to him and they bury him while he's still breathing, you think. Yeah, you absolutely deserve that and more, and <laughs> it is just such a, such a just a satisfying. And the fact that it comes from the guy who played Billy Bat is the revenge of Billy Bat. Yeah, it was. Yeah, he bats him. <laughs> so as much as I'm trying to remove the comparisons to you know from Goodfellas, that's one of the things where it benefits to have seen Goodfellas beforehand. It's perfect. Well, you used another um, bit of connection, right? Because in real life, was Nicky Santoro who cut the character? Mm-hmm. He was actually killed. Not in the cornfield. He was buried in the cornfield, but he was actually killed in a fake. You know, they th- he thought he was going to be a made man. Whoa! So it was actually and, the same. And as... it was the same as Goodfellas, and wow. then they buried him in the cornfield. Oh wow! There's another connection for you. Yeah. But uh, but another going back to the you know when uh, Tommy's you know killed in Goodfellas, you know Nicky in Casino, it's the same kind of thing. It's his friends, you know, all the way through Frank Marino. Is his second in command? You know, they talking all the time. You know, that scene when they got to cover their mouths. You know, just in case. You know, because people are watching all the time. They are, you know, arm in arm almost. Some, you know, a lot of the time. And that who's the one who kills Nicky? It's Frank Marino. Yeah, Frank Vincent. You know, mm-hmm. well, that's that's the classic line in Goodfellas, isn't it? You never knew when you're gonna gonna get whacked because friends came with a smile. Yeah, yeah. You know, there was never sort of suspicion that you know something was wrong. It's only later in Goodfellas that Henry realizes that something is drastically wrong after he's been caught and after this has happened and after Jimmy has said this. And going back to my issues with you know Goodfellas and what is the truth, there there isn't the same issue there with with Casino for me. And the fact that Sam Rothstein is he just wants to do his job. He's exceptional at his job. And like he says to Nicky countless times, I you know I just I just want a quiet life. I want to be able to get on and, and you know run the casino and make money and and do my job. That's all he wants to do. You know, he's part of this lifestyle, but he's not a gangster. He's a different person altogether. And from that point of view, I, th- I find him far easier to sympathise with and like than any of the characters in Goodfellas. I'm not sure like yeah. is the... Uh... Well, you <laughs> like sympathise with. Sympathise yeah, with, yes. you know? Yeah. He's a moneymaker, isn't he? He's a moneymaker. He's a money maker, and he's exceptionally good at his job, and he just happens to do his job for very unsavoury people. Yes. Yes. And, ma- and, and make him a lot of money. Indeed. Obviously, Leighton, Kyle, you know, you've made it clear that this isn't top five Scorsese for you. Is that right? Uh, Not for me. Not for me. I think it would be like number six. It's like right there, though. Yeah, yeah, it would be number six for me. It would be number six for me. We may be stepping on our own feet, Steve, if we do this now. But shall we ask them what their top five Scorsese films are? Go on, then, Leighton. You go first. Goodfellas, Raging Ball, Taxi Driver, Mean Streets, Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, that's fairly close to mine. Kyle, what about you? 
Uh, Goodfellas would be number one. Uh, Wolf of Wall Street, Last Temptation of Christ, Taxi Driver, and Raging Bull. Steve, I think we'll leave ours for a later date, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Shit out. You shit out. <laughs> Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, but the um, yep. the uh, bronze plaque outside Film 89 Towers, does it say the names Kyle Reardon and Leighton Winston on that plaque? As the family fathers? <laughs> I, I've never seen it. Nope. No. Nope. So right I don't believe it does, so uh, we will reserve the right to keep that quiet until a, until a later episode. <laughs> There's only so, so many corner offices that we can give out. <laughs> <laughs> but no, for me, Casino's definitely top five Scorsese. Where it lands on our list, um, yeah, not too sure, yeah. but yeah, it, it, it's a film I just love. And Steve? I think I, what I would say is I'm going to co- um, cop out a little bit and say there's about seven or eight films in my top five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Perfect answer. 1A, 1B. Sky, honestly, one of my notes is how many versions, how many different versions of Stone songs are actually in Casino. I watched it the day before yesterday. Yeah. And I, I must have counted seven or eight. And there's three or four Stone songs. But there's another four or five cover versions in it that I never sort of realized without actually... Hang on a second. That's Devo covering um, Jumping Jack Flash or something like that. Yeah. There's there's loads of different. Look, I love the Stones. I do love the Stones. Mm. Look, I don't mind it when Scorsese uses "Give Me Shelter" for the 48th time. I really don't. But I was thinking, how many Stones songs can you have in one movie other than "Shine Light," mm. which is like a concert movie at the end of the day, isn't it? You know, it was crazy. But he's Martin Scorsese, and they're the Rolling Stones, so. I'm just some bloke from Aberdeen, so... It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. That is our, well, 30th anniversary celebration of Goodfellas, 25th anniversary celebration of Casino. Uh, yeah, it would be. Yeah, yeah, it would be. Obviously, you know, the opinions of our vaulted guests are not as important as mine and Steve's. <laughs> <laughs> so, for, for me and Steve, they're two of the greatest films ever made. And for other yes. people, maybe one of them is less so, but... Steve and I, we get the final say. I'll just edit out all the bad stuff you said about Casino. Apparently, <laughs> the other views are. Uh, well, I don't know why. Are available. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> if you want to look. <laughs> Leighton, if people want to hit you up on social media and uh, ask about all the stuff that was edited out of this episode, where can they find you? <laughs> I'm at Leighton on Twitter, which is public, and everything else is private, so don't bother. Kyle, uh, where can they find you? And uh, tell us where we're going to find your eventual film, Nowhere to Run. Yeah, uh, I'm on Twitter. That's usually the only thing I'm on right now, and that's uh, at Kyle Reardon Film. And uh, my film, so I'm in a weird spot right now because of COVID. So we finished editing officially, let's say probably a month and a half ago. But if I want it in festivals, I can't release it yet online. So I've only had a handful of people actually be able to see the film because we've done one premiere screening. Uh, So we're kind of in a lull right now until festivals start warming up again. All my backers, and including the Film 89 fam, here will be getting a copy. Um, Actually, I haven't announced this yet, but we're doing we're setting out the final copy Christmas Day. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, so that the final copy will be sent out Christmas Day to all the backers and film Twitter friends that have been supporting us uh, throughout. Then hopefully we get into festivals 2021. Awesome. I can't wait. And Kyle, I know you sent me a rough copy a few weeks back. 
And I elected not to watch that because when uh, Steve and I finally do our review for Film 89 of Nowhere to Run, I, we want it to be based on the final cut. I don't want any previous cuts. 100%. So purely from the point of view to give the film a fair run of when we finally review it, I'm gonna, I'm not going to watch the assembly cut that you sent me. But thank you very much. But that final cut, I, I, I can't wait to see it. From the time you made that first appearance on Wrong Wheel discussing the film and you were telling me about the plot and the influences. And I, was, I actually remember where I was going at the time, where I was driving, and I was smiling to myself thinking, yes, this is the type of film I want to see. Can't wait to see it. I appreciate that. And um, the assembly cut, it, it's cool. Um, and it'll be a part of, uh, we're doing like a whole documentary on the making of the film. I have hours of behind the scenes footage. And uh, that assembly cut plays into part of the documentary. So it, it will all um, it will all be like ancillary material for the final cut of the film as well. So it'll be cool. And I'll say, you know, obviously one advantage that the assembly cut will have over the final cut is that it's got Gimme Shelter in a key scene. <laughs> <laughs> And unfortunately, you couldn't. You, yeah, you couldn't secure the rights for the film in in, in for the song in the final cut. <laughs> All great gangster films have got "Gimme Shelter" in it. It's a fact. And Steve, uh, what about you, mate? Where, where can people find you if they want tips as to how to beat COVID? <laughs> um, the best place is Twitter at Welsh Bluesman, and I think I shall start posting videos of "Gimme Shelter" the next a couple of days. Oh, yes. Maybe once every two or three days. <laughs> okay. I need to win now. <laughs> Kyle Leighton, thank you for finally joining us. Uh, your your appearance on the Film 89 podcast has been long overdue. Obviously, Kyle, I think we first spoke of this episode, oh my God, maybe two years ago, didn't we? Yeah, we've been talking about this for a while. Because yeah, I, I originally think... wanted to come on and talk about Jaws, Jaws but yeah. you guys have already, already done that in the commentary as yeah. well. So this was a perfect segue. Oh, yeah, that. absolutely, yeah. And uh, Leighton, obviously we couldn't talk about your favorite film without having you on. It's been great to finally have you on. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this, guys. It has just been an absolute blast. Everyone knows where to find me now. Uh, I'm on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies. You can find the rest of the Film 89 team on Twitter and Facebook at Film 89 UK. Uh, please, if you could go onto our Facebook page, Neil has been plastering all sorts of great stuff following the recent Disney announcements on Facebook today. And if you could please go and like and share all, all of those posts, if that's your bag. Yeah, thank you for everyone who's enjoyed our most recent episodes. The um, Joey Kramer interview uh, has had absolutely fantastic feedback, as has Neil and Richie's awesome breakdown of The Karate Kid and his subsequent follow-up films and TV series. Yeah, the, the, the episode that is currently playing now as you record this, which is John Aminio and Hayden Spurl's uh, sort of history of Alan Wall's Watchmen. You know, that episode is getting some great feedback and, and fantastic amount of downloads, so thank you so much for everyone who's enjoying that. Please, if you could go on Apple Podcasts and give us a positive review, we would greatly appreciate that. Well, I think that's it, guys. Uh, as we usually say, stay safe, social distance, wear your mask, try and avoid COVID if you can until they get that vaccine out to us but more importantly you stay classy and give me shelter